This episode of How To Wrestling was requested by John McNair, one of our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash howtowrestling, where hey, if you like this show and you like it being ad-free, you can get access to over 130-something pay-per-view reviews going all the way back to 2015 from AEW and WWE, as well as that, our new ongoing pay-per-view classic series where we go back and do in-depth full reviews of classic pay-per-views that Joe might enjoy, as well as our totally Divas series where we're re-watching all of Total Divas as well as our YouTube wrestler review, how to revisit it and so much more. All of this available for as little as $5 a month over at patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling and thanks to all of our lovely backers for making 2023 such a fab year and we hope to bring you lots of amazing episodes in 2024 and beyond but for now it's time to settle in get our moonwalking shoes on and dust off the old goggles because this is how to cool episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe how to enjoy wrestling. And this might be the flyest episode we've ever done, because today we're talking about Too Cool. That's right, this episode is How Too Cool, not How Too Too Cool or How 22 Cool. We've been workshopping it. Hi, once again, it's me, your old pal, Grandmaster Captain Kevin Mann. Join us, I'm always, by Joanna Too Graham-y. It's Joe Graham. Hello. I can't believe you didn't go with Too Hot Joe Graham. Joe Too Hot Graham. That yeah. could also work as well. It's, uh... It's interesting because you have often, like many millennial women, mm-hmm. been struck with the, uh, the curious look yeah. there. Been struck with the issue of uh, the thought experiment of becoming a worm, <laughs> <laughs> which I believe makes you the Scott Taylor of this pairing here today on this podcast. That's very accurate. An interesting episode on tap today, because as much as I love talking about the great legends and the titans of our industry and the trailblazers and the people who have maybe not had their time in the sun getting brought to light, this episode today is about something that we don't really get to talk about. Something that was firmly in the middle of the cards and neither a main event act nor a complete throwaway jobber team, but something that was firmly in the middle of the card yet seems to have resonated with the audience over the past 20 some years. I'm not going to lie, Joe. There are sometimes we do episodes where we anticipate a lot of tweets, mm. and there are times we do episodes where we think there'll be some tweets. Yeah. I thought this would firmly be in the some tweet category. Yeah. And this has perhaps been one of our biggest responses ever, it seems. It's wild. I can never predict (laughs) which wrestlers we'll get loads of responses for and which we'll get. I can't remember which. There was a big episode we did not that long ago. And we got hardly any, not not that we're complaining, it doesn't matter, like, we got hardly any messages from people. And I guess that that wrestler, whose name, I can't remember who it was, didn't speak to people that much. I think that might have even been the Vader episode. It might have been. Which, since then, I think a lot of people have probably come around on Vader, myself included, I wouldn't have been tweeting (laughs) necessarily. (laughs) But Too Cool, there's something very special. There's something very magical about Too Cool, because immediately everyone's coming out 
talking about their childhood memories and how much they meant to them. And oh, it's just lovely. I can't think of many acts in wrestling that weren't like big, you know, marquee names that seemed to penetrate from wrestling fandom into wider kind of kids and teenagers. And I'm not sure if this is relegated to Ireland, the UK, America, wherever it is. But I do want to make a wild claim that I believe Too Cool are responsible for most teenage boys or preteens dancing in the year 2000 to 2001. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. There were a lot of tweets about people specifically talking about dancing and doing these dance moves that this dancing comedy tag team were shuffling and jiving with in the year 2000 slash 2001. It's a very narrow period of time we're talking about as well here. Really? That's short? I mean, that's the, their run, you know, if you take away injuries, was probably six to nine months maybe that's in total. Mad. And there's not many people who, you know, I know a lot of people who aren't wrestling fans, but know of the worm. Yeah. They know of, you know, the, the hip hop drop people putting on their goggles and wiping them. All the various silly dance moves that Grandmaster Sexay and Scotty Too Hotty did over the years because it became kind of part of the bread and butter of being a kid on the playground, it seems. Mm. When we were doing our research for this, we came across a video. It was literally, you know when you come across it on YouTube that's like 16 years old and yeah. it has like 100 views? Proper fossil here. Yeah. And it was just a bunch of like lads and film themselves in the backyard going we're all gonna do the too cool dance look so I'm, I'm gonna do a handstand oh wait no i'm not i can't do it there's one of them who could do the worm yeah, always that's obviously why they did it <laughs> i mean i wasn't the kid who could do the worm in my in my dance troupe is it's all i'll really say hard have you ever tried joe yeah what okay. of course stupid question did you ever do a people's elbow did you ever draw on one of your socks did you ever <laughs> yeah i did all these things because i had the indignity of being a wrestling fan during the attitude era well even i tried to do the worm i never watched wrestling did this penetrate into the uh to the schoolyards of cambridgeshire when joe was growing up i have no idea if it was a too cool thing specifically because i I have no recollection of them whatsoever. It's not like, you know, Hulk Hogan or Stone Cold or The Undertaker where it's like, I was vaguely aware of them even outside of watching wrestling. Yeah. But the worm was absolutely a thing. There was this girl in my school who was, she was like ultra feminine. She was incredibly good at art and she would always paint these massive paintings of cats, like psychedelic portraits of cats. <laughs> so Cambridge. <laughs> she was so... And Tony Blair paid her to do that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if she got paid, but I know that the school was covered in her painting. Like, they like com basically commissioned her to like do paintings of cats for the school. And she would always do the worm. And it was always like... Like, even though she was a bit of a loner, I don't think she was ever ostracized because she could do the worm and it was always really cool. <laughs> There's something very pure about the fact that there was a very notable point, I remember, from being the age of 12 or so, where there was a bunch of boys who would do wrestling moves to each other on the playground. And, you know, there's a lot of broken glasses, bloody noses. I ruptured a disc which fragmented into my spinal. I didn't. There was a lot of don't try this at home stuff that was happening on the schoolyard. I always imagine it be very interesting for the teachers to look out at one day, all these rough and tumble boys are now playing with the girls and the other boys, and instead they're all dancing. Yeah. It's like for a very brief window, all these schools became high school musical without Aww. the singing. Because we were all dancing around, yeah. you know? This was an interesting one for me to revisit, because I was met very early on with a question from you. 
of was this really like cringe and awkward like was this was this cool was this cool for me as a kid when i was like 12 years old that's it you were 12 12 yeah which is a really awkward age i don't know how else to say it but it is it's an awkward age where you kind of are growing out of a lot of stuff that you thought was kiddie and childish yeah and you're trying i think extra hard when you're 12 you try almost harder than when you're 13 or 14 to distance yourself from stuff that you were into as a kid. Yeah, it's a really weird time for me at that age because I was always, the every class I was ever in, I was always the youngest. Oh. I was in that kind of, you know, you see this in school sometimes where yeah. you could either be like the oldest kid in me. one cohort. Oldest, always the oldest. Were you the tallest in your group? Always <laughs> the tallest, by like a good foot. <laughs> or you could be like me where your parents are like, nah, he's got glasses, he's pretty smart looking, throw him in the deep end, he could be the oh. youngest instead. So I was like always the one who was clinging on to a lot of the childish stuff. Like I, as a, when I was a seven or eight year old kid... I you couldn't stop me from dancing if I was on holiday or if I was at a wedding or if I was at any sort of party and music came on I'd be the little kid where I go but that's like that's kids isn't it like yes. kids love to dance yeah and I was a prolific dancer and karaoke singer up Aww. until the age of like 10 or 11 oh right so this is way before too way cool. before too cool and then i was like mm, i don't want to do it anymore i don't think i like it even though i was still like watching cartoons and playing with toys and all that mm. dancing was the thing you know the thing do that was know, free that was the thing i stopped playing interested i blame adults for that because so often adults will make little snarky comments to yes. kids at that when they get to around 10 they start to be like Oh, you're still doing that, are you? It's like, fuck off. I'm 10. Yes. I've got several more years of fun left before I have to be a oh, miserable... Oh, you're dragging up memories now. Because <laughs> I literally remember the exact moment being on holiday and looking off and you know, dancing around or whatever and then seeing, you know, in the crowd what was once a, a, a nice knowing smile of yeah. a child doing something well to a wry look of pity yeah grow up it's grow so, up it's so sad it's your you're 11 now time to be a man stop <laughs> dancing so when too cool came around baby i was all about that dancing once again if you saw me between the ages of 12 and 15 oh there was a good chance that i was ambiently doing the grandmaster sex say you slap the hands together you bring the arms back alternating those legs you'd I was always pointing at stuff, yeah. imaginary shoveling things, pointing and ducking my head. Baby, I love those moves. And were you doing this ironically? Because like when I was that kind of age, like past the age of like 13, 14, anything like that that I was into, it was very much like, yeah, I'm doing it ironically, which is why it's cool. No, we didn't have irony in County Westmeath, Joe. Really? We weren't, we weren't, no, it, was, it wasn't an ironic thing. What it was was I liked it like I liked loads of stuff about wrestling but that was one of the only things where other people were like ah yeah or, or we're all gonna join in together like because the only kids who wanted to actually wrestle around with the kids like yeah hit me like yeah. you know or I'm, I'm okay with bleeding or potentially breaking your glasses or having my glasses broken or whatever it is but there was more of a feel-good aspect to this where like loads of people would join in that's nice. And I think like what exemplifies that more than anything was that when I was 12, that summer, the summer of Too Cool in the year 2000, 
I was in German language college in Multifarnham mm. and I didn't have a particularly good time at German language college because you could only speak German in Ugh. German language college. Mm. And I got in trouble in my first week in German language college because I started talking about the theory about the Death Star from the movie Clerks with my roommates in the middle of the night and a person burst in and caught me speaking English and I had to ring home and tell my mum... What's the German for Death Star? Mutter... Ich bin schrecklich verloren. Ich habe Englisch gesprochen. And mum was like, what's he saying? Like, it's, it's like one in the morning. And like, there are all these like, you know, adults being like, yeah, and he's, he's really fucked it. Like, you're not going to get your, like, we're going to send him home and you're not going to get Pathetic. your money back. I can't imagine how much it costs to send your kids to a live-in German language college. Like, that's one of the worst things I think I've ever done in my life. So what the fuck was the teacher doing in your dorm at one in the morning? I don't know, but like, creep. after a year of boarding school at that point, I wasn't asking too many questions about Weirdo. the sudden appearance of uh, of teachers in the middle of the night. Go to bed. So I had a bad time. And also compounded by that bad time was that I was the youngest person in German language college. Aww. And there were kids there up to the ages like 16, 17 who were going to be doing like their leave insert and stuff like that. So it was a... Uh, Kind of a, a, a big mix of kids of all different ages. So bad times were ensuing. I remember one particularly bad time was that I had been told by someone who wanted to pay a trick on me that the Rocky Horror Picture Show themed party they were doing. They do parties every Friday, you see. And that the Rocky Horror themed Picture Show themed party they were doing, I was like, oh, is it like a horror movie? And people were like, yes, it is. So I got a green chub chubs and licked it and rubbed it all over my face to be a zombie. Mm. And then I showed up and everyone was dressed like Rocky Horror Picture Show and I was like oh but there are <laughs> things like that in the Rocky Horror Picture Show well I was laughed at anyway fake, fake fans <laughs> also that's a weird party for young teens to be doing I think it's very strange to ask a 12 year old to get your gimmicks ready for the Rocky Horror Picture Show party so like, well, they, what, dressed in like yeah, I, I guess like their interpretation of it was sexy lingerie. It was all like goth stuff and whatnot that they were mostly that's wearing. That's the cool thing about Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's very diverse in terms of costuming. No, it's not. You're wrong. But anyway, there was me and another kid who liked wrestling, and uh, we <laughs> we were always kind of you know just sitting on the sidelines, not taking part in all these parties. And then for whatever reason, one of all the last sexy parties, one of the last parties that they did of the year, it was just a general like, hey, we're gonna play music. It's gonna be a disco time and it's all gonna be super fun and he and i just decided hey you know why don't we just start doing the two cool dance so he was doing scotty and i was doing grandmaster sexy mm. and we just started dancing around not really caring who was looking and joe i shit you not these two awkward boys who were doing these awful wrestling taunts disguised as dance moves suddenly had a circle of people around them Aww. who all started rhythmically clapping and then we were like, oh my God, we're, or, or moment, we're, we're like, we're running out of moves. We've done all the, all the dances. We didn't know what to do. So <laughs> this is the, how you knew that we were proper workers. We respected the business. We pointed out into the crowd and we found one of the popular boys. He was this eccentric little boy from Kerry who was yeah. affectionately given the nickname of Kerry Boy. We pointed at him, dragged him mime style into the center. I took off my glasses and I put them on his head like he was Rikishi and the three of us did two cool dance moves. That's so funny. It's just like the end of an episode of Smackdown except Linkin Park was playing while we were doing it. So three kids doing Which two one, cool. Which one, in the end? It's so hard, it looks so far. 
But in the end, we looked flying on that day. That's so cool. And also, hearing that story, it makes perfect sense why you became a teacher. <laughs> why? Because that's like, that's like encapsulates perfectly like what a good teacher does. What? Identifies an opportunity and points at it. Understanding crowd dynamics and how you need to rope in the popular kid to get what you're doing over. I would say it also works well in stand-up comedy. Absolutely, you yeah. Know? Uh, and also it works well in podcasting, hence I just point at various people and get them to do podcasts with me. Yeah. And then marry me like my wife, Joe. You're not allowed to do that with anyone else. I will promise you that's yeah. not going to happen. On the note of wholesome dancing experiences as a, as a young lad... I did want to ask, just because this is something that's come up on a few episodes previously, is both the keratine lads at your school... (laughs) Keratine? Not keratine, what's it called? Creatine. Creatine. What's keratine? Is that the thing that goes in your hair? That's the thing that makes it into your hair. And also, rhino horns. (laughs) Well, in my head now, they all have lustrous, shiny hair. I mean, a lot of them did. Some of their hair fell out as well. Mm, Okay. (laughs) And... Also, your brother. Yes. So I want to know what the creatine lads and your brother no, felt about they didn't, too cool. No, they didn't like that. They were too old. Too old. Thought it was cringy. Thought it was lame. Dancing's crap. But did they hate it so much that they'd like try and beat you up for doing the who cool dance? No, I don't think so. I think like a lot of those boys at that point, like they were they were more focused on like smaller aspects of wrestling. Right. That was just kind of like the kiddie part. I think you see that a lot. You you say this to me all the time. I think a lot of folks, myself definitely included, should bear it in mind. Wrestling is for kids, ultimately. Yeah. And, like, you know, it's great if you can appreciate the, the, the spectacle of it. And I think it's cool that, you know, people of all ages can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I'm always surprised at how quickly, and I'm included in this category, that, like, wrestling fans will jump to, like, Rah! you're hating on something because it's like, meant to be feel good or you know silly or lighter now we didn't have twitter in the year 2000 dare i say if we did have twitter in the year 2000 perhaps too cool wouldn't have gotten over been the just kind of feel good hey there they are they're dancing and that's all it is you know because i think we maybe we thought about it a bit too much you say that they'd have been fucking massive on tiktok yeah that's true actually imagine they've gone so viral that is true you know i hope they'd be they'd be uh rightly attributed for their dance moves yeah but yeah, I feel like one of the strengths of this was that people didn't think about it too much. Mm. And a lot of the people who liked this didn't even know that it was from wrestling. You know, they just saw people doing the worm and people, you know, doing silly dance moves and, you know, like wrestling didn't invent dancing and wrestling certainly didn't invent the worm. Yeah, but I it, it was a cultural moment. I don't know how I've never really thought about this before because like yeah where did the worm come from well, originally it's a hip-hop like breakdancing but like move i from don't the 80s. remember growing not not yet I, I i'm not denying that i know it was invented Late 70s, it's like probably. a breakdancing yeah. thing but like i'm wondering how it made its way into like m- like my world because i don't remember seeing any celebrities doing the worm no it's 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 i'll tell you what's in the uk and i can't speak for america in this but in the uk and ireland Channel 4 in the year 2000 started showing Sunday Night Heat, which was the kind of the C-tier show. It's the show that the mid-carders and the jobbers would appear on. There wouldn't be like big stories or big promos. It would always be an hour of kind of mostly disposable, feel-good wrestling with some highlights from Raw and SmackDown included. It's too cool being a firmly mid-card act. We're always on that show. And that was on free television, terrestrial TV. You didn't need a satellite or cable. If you had an aerial, you could get Channel 4 in the UK or Ireland. That was on Channel 4? Channel 4. How did I know? 
I got Channel 4 quite late. I got Channel 4 after we got broadband. Oh, you're, so, you're such a weird I know. technological... I know, anomaly. If you should play Civilization against Joe, yeah. it's fucking wild. She's all backwards. She gets Channel 4 before she gets nuclear weapons. It's mad. <laughs> but yeah, I'm... I'm just really surprised that I never saw it. When did it stop showing on Channel 4? It was, again, it was much like Too Cool. It was a brief window. It was maybe nine months to a year, thereabouts. So it would have been, what, 2001? 2000 to 2001. Yeah, yeah, I think we got Channel 4 in 2002. Well, there you go. But like a lot of kids, you know, they would not become fans or anything like that, but they'd be, you know, swapping through. And it's why I believe as well that the tag teams of the Ashley era, you know, the big names like the Hardys and the Dudley Boys and Edge and Christian... They resonate a lot because a lot of times the tag teams would get featured on this show. But it's so funny to think that in this era that we're talking about here, the Attitude Era, when you had these historical, legendary tag teams who were jumping off ladders and redefining, you know, what these multi-man matches were, that a lot of the thing that people remember most fondly was the guys who were very much several rungs below that mm. ladder whose job wasn't necessary to have the match of the night or the most believable encounter. It was to make people feel good about themselves and dance. And it's funny because no one talks about it. When you hear people talking about the Attitude Era, they talk about The Rock or Stone Cold or maybe at a push, Rikishi, like if you're yeah. going in that direction. I never hear, outside of like this episode and the tweets we've gotten, I never hear people talking about Too Cool. But it's, it's weird. because It's obviously really important to lots of people. The groundswell of responses that we've gotten like, shows you that it's one of those things that people, I think people recognise almost that it wasn't like pivotal. Yeah. Like if Too Cool weren't there, would the Attitude Era have worked? Yes. <laughs> like but it would have been fine. I don't, look, I'm not so confident to say it definitely wouldn't have worked without them, but I'm not so sure if it would have worked as well. Because, like, without them, it's not really an appropriate show for children. It is very much one of the few things you could put your hand on and say, this is for kids. Because yeah, like, a lot of the wrestling was very adult, yeah. I feel like for parents walking in on their kids watching wrestling, they're going to see Too Cool and be like, oh, that's nice. My, my, you know, my kids are watching something yeah, fun. But look, Joe, you don't, you don't know this, but it's literally impossible for a parent to walk in on someone during the Attitude Era and they're watching Too Cool. Yeah, always they, be a bra and panties. Always that, or it'll be Val Venus, or yeah. it'll be the... One time, my my mum and my friend's mum were over in our house while my friend was there. Me and my friend watched wrestling. Mum came in at one point and his mum came in at one point. My mum came in during Val Venus's match in mm. Sexy Promo talking about his dick. Yeah. His mum came in during the Godfather's entrance where they're like, The whole train! Look at all these prostitutes, JR! Oh, man! <laughs> and we're like 10 being like, yes, is, is there, it's Friday. We were watching our children's <laughs> wrestling program. I guess it's more the fact that like, in terms of plausible deniability, <laughs> having an act like Too Cool... <laughs> It's like, it shows that like for the, I don't know, for the for the networks or whoever was like broadcasting these shows, it's like, yeah, there, there's an act for children. It is family friendly. Yes. And it kind of dampens a bit all of the really edgy, weird, offensive-y stuff. I think that it's always important to have some element of that on a wrestling show. Mm. I think if there's too much of it, the wrestling show feels like it's just kind of a throwaway, silly, gaga, circus thing or whatever. But like, I think if you have a wrestling show and there's no levity... But that's it. Like, I always wondered 
why so many people like you and Adam and such got into wrestling at such a young age when it didn't really seem appropriate for children. Like, there's nothing there for you. Oh, don't say there's something there. There's freaking Kane and Mankind and Stone Cold and The Rock. There's cool dudes who look cool doing cool things. Yeah, they're definitely appealing, but they're not for children, really. No, that's what makes them appealing. Yeah. That's why, like, people, like... That, you know, I, I, that's why people like kids love to watch things like Spawn and Oz and stuff like that when they're 13 years old because they know it's ultimately... Oz? Jesus. Yeah! Wouldn't that 13-year-old of mine watch Oz? I'm just saying, like, you know, that for the teenage... I can't speak for everyone, but for the teenage boy in my experience, mm. it not being for kids was the very reason why it was appealing to me as a kid. Because it's like, I'm an adult now. I'm going to watch South Park. I'm going to watch rude television. I'm going to see swearing. Because all the people want me to on the playground. And yeah, it doesn't make any sense then why you were so into Too Cool, who's like... I know. Four children. I think ultimately we were still kids. And even yeah. kids who like edgy stuff and want to be... Like, every kid wants to be treated like an adult. Every kid wants to, to seem, you know, wise beyond their years or get to do the things that they're technically not allowed to do. But they still like fucking cake and juice and dancing gimmicks and, you yeah. know... I think there's been a lot of wrestlers over the years who have done dancing gimmicks to varying degrees of success. Mm. I would hazard a guess in 10 years' time, there won't be a groundswell of Gen Z kids talking about how awesome No Way Jose was, for instance. Even though he was, he was a fine wrestler, he was, he was entertaining. Great. But oh, like, man. were people all imitating his stuff on the playground? Nah. Probably not. But then again, I feel that's more to do with the fact that NXT never had a target demographic of children. Yeah, that's true. Whereas, like, the Ashton era definitely did. Yeah, like, when Channel 4 was broadcasting wrestling, they thought they were getting a kids' show. What time of day yeah. would it have been broadcast? 6pm on a Sunday. Oh, my God, that's Simpsons time. I know, yeah. That's literally Simpsons o'clock. <laughs> so it is interesting because, yeah, like, I remember Cole Cabana's always said, like, oh, you want one of them gimmicks, like a dancing gimmick or whatever, where... You get paid to show up at the show and you just have to dance in the ring, wave your hands around. Maybe a couple of kids from the front row come in, you wave at the audience and there you go. Like no one expects you to take bumps or to yeah. to put on a great match. And then 30 years from then you get paid $50 to sign a photograph of yourself. Easy peasy, buddy, yeah. if you can make it. But, you know, look at most wrestling fans in our circles on Twitter. If someone's given a dancing gimmick, uh-oh, or IP. Like, you mm. know, here lies Daniel Garcia forced to dance against his will by a wicked billionaire. Yeah. And I, I, I understand that there is frustrations that you think there can be limitations to being given a dancing gimmick. But I feel like Too Cool, this is going to be a great example today of how, it doesn't really matter what type of wrestler you are, if you connect with a crowd and you run with something that's getting over, you can have notoriety and status well beyond your years. Mm. I don't think anyone expected, when you talk about the, the these two individuals who formed Too Cool, them to have the kind of longevity in people's nostalgia and memories that they have ended up having. I think a lot more people can remember these than a lot more serious, established tag teams who were like proper wrestlers who were meant to be treated seriously when we were kids. But that makes sense, though, because if you're a kid... A lot of that stuff's going to go over your head yeah. and won't make sense and you'll probably find it boring. But like the dancing guys, that's obviously right up your alleyway. Because we like to dance. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about the background of the two gentlemen who formed Too Cool. Starting with Scott Taylor, a.k.a. Scotty Too Hotty, a.k.a. Too Hot Scott Taylor, a.k.a. Scott Garland. He was a lifelong jobber. Like he started wrestling in 1991. And he was wrestling on the New England Indies. He was used as the enhancement talent for the WWF. You can see him like over the years being squashed by... 
people from the Hogan era, the new generation, early attitude era and whatnot. Like, he was one of those people who was kind of like a, a lifer, basically. Like, he, he was not necessarily resting to try and become a top star, it felt. Now, I know we've obviously done an episode on jobbers, but I am intrigued as to how someone has a whole career of being a jobber, but not to the point of, like... I know there's certain characters who are, like, famously jobbers, like Gil. Yeah, Dwayne Gil. Dwayne Gil, Gilberg. But, like, then there's a lot of guys who are just, like, more kind of... I don't know what you'd call it, but like kind of consistent, reliable, yes. low tier jobbers who aren't famous for being a jobber. They're just, that's what their job is. Well, I think it's it's no shock that Scotty here is the guy out of the group, including Rikishi, if we want to you know mention him as well. I would say check out the Rikishi episode oh, yeah. as, a, as a good sign piece for this one. But he had the longest tenure employment of any of them. And I think your reliability when you're a job, a good job guy is extremely important because in those days, at least... That was how they scouted talent. You'd get a tryout match. They'd put you with one of the kind of the, the really reliable jobbers, mm. be it Funaki or Stevie Richards or Scotty Too Hotty. And that's a good kick of the tires in a way to see like, right, with our safest pair of reliable hands, is this person able to do our style or whatnot? So yeah. it is like, if you can get it, it's not very glamorous work, but it's, you know, there's a lot more jobbers who've had 10 year plus careers with WWE. Mm. And a lot of people who are in the mid card who maybe had two years a year you know thereabouts yeah and those folks who are lifelong jobbers whatever they end up actually having a pretty decent career on the indies as well because you end up being on tv for like a decade or so like scotty was like people everyone remembers scotty too hotty like people older than me people younger than me because he was on tv for so long right it's a very unglamorous but quite sure-footed way yeah to have a long career in wrestling i don't know if many people are seeking that for themselves from the get-go no probably not because i think wrestling attracts a type of person who wants fame yeah and i think in this day and age where it's social media and everyone has to be their own promoter mm. no one's going to go on twitter and be like hey yo make sure you book me for your upcoming show i'm a really reliable solid hand i'll yeah. lose you can't present yourself as that i think that opportunity maybe just fall into your lap or something like that i mean i think maybe like um pretty peter avalon from aew is mm. someone who i think understands his position as being a guy who's very good at losing oh. to stars or whatever I mean, well, like ryan nemeth as well he's like my favorite jobber he, and he's not he's gonna say he's your favorite wrestler because it feels like it is he's I your mean, favorite wrestler he's up there. i mean he's got a famous brother joe but yeah, yeah. i think it's it's not a, a typical route i think in modern times where people are like oh this is what i'm gonna do but i think and Scotty, you think about him, he was starting up in the early 90s. And you look at the people he was wrestling with, like the Warlord and the Berserker. They're guys who are like two feet taller than him and 150 pounds heavier. I don't think he came up in an age where you would think there is a chance for you to be anything other than a good, you know, small enhancement guy or whatever right. it is. But he eventually got a full-time contract with the WWF in 1997 when they were dabbling in doing like a light heavyweight division, which was kind of like half-hearted attempt to do a crossover with some Japanese stars, but mainly just as a response to the fact that Eric Bischoff and WCW were putting on cruiserweight action from some of the top stars in Mexico and Japan as well, and America and Canada. And they were like kind of running circles around them in that end. It was more like kind of a, look, we can do it too right. as well. His partner, Brian Christopher, how quickly did you find out he was Jerry Lawler's son? Oh, immediately. You knew that from the get-go. 
Yes, I knew that before we did this episode. I'm trying to think when I found out. I think it's just one of those things that I have learned over the years. You know, you hear um, Jerry Lawler has a son who was a wrestler. Yeah. And then, you know, at some point it's like, oh, yeah, he was in Too Cool. And then I learn a bit more about Too Cool. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he looks just like him. I do recall an incredulous look in your face when you were like, sorry, his name is Grandmaster Sexay. Yeah. Like, two X's? No, no, it's, it's but it's S-E-X-A-Y. Oh, okay. So Sexay. Right. Uh, almost as indignant as Jim Ross when he had to call out the, the, the name Grandmaster Sexay. What is he, Sexay? He's not sexy? I don't get it. I got his character confused. Not visually, obviously, but um, in terms of the name, I always got his name confused with the Godfather. <laughs> oh, because you've the Godfather and then there's a Grandmaster who is Sexay. Yeah, yeah. So two, two kind of sexy adjacent characters. But there's quite a few of them at this time because you've got Val Venus as yeah. well. Yeah, that's what the era was. Yeah. You know, it was all about that. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people and myself included, when I was first introduced to him, I would have first seen him in like 1998 when I started watching wrestling. I just kind of assumed like, oh, Nepo baby, he's Jerry's kid. So, you know, Jerry Lawler's a big star in wrestling and in Memphis and he's the commentator on, on WWF. Ergo, they hire his son. Like, that's 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 what happens in wrestling. But I was quite shocked when we were doing our research here that Brian's career, before he came to WWF, he was nearly a decade in Memphis, in the USWA, just kind of grinding, like wow. doing what his dad did, being the kind of the local star. And we did some kind of reading about his, his childhood and his backstory. I don't think it's ever easy to be the son of uh, a wrestler, a known wrestler, Yes, alone the very particular type of local legend that Jerry the King Lawler is. Yeah, for sure. Like the closest comparison you would have to this situation is like Dusty's kids. And obviously one of them had a very hard life. Mm. And the other one, I don't think he like Cody had an easy time. No, but lessons were learned, I believe, yeah. from the first go around. I think let's like, just say. out of all of like legendarily famous wrestlers who have kids, Cody probably had the best chance. Uh, like a happy normal upbringing compared to like all other wrestlers i think so yeah because yeah it's it's hard and i think especially for someone like brian christopher where he was in memphis because like it's it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around now because wrestling is more global but like a local local star like that celebrity like you know jerry lawler was very much like i think what always exemplifies lawler's insane popularity in local circles was that he ran for mayor of memphis and during his campaign he ran over the foot of a reporter who was asking him questions and nothing came about it was like ah fair enough yeah it's the king (laughs) there's so much shit out there about jerry lawler and his relationship to the police powerful man in memphis it will be an interesting episode when we eventually do it um but yeah i can't imagine being his son you think like being a son of someone like that like you've really got the odds are stacked against you in terms of just like being normal it's not the case for everyone but i think that it is very much easy as a son to idolize your father and Mm. you know view them as larger than life and super amazing and all that like i think i always remember about my dad because my dad's a doctor and i remember one day my dad just coming in from school i was like six or seven my dad was having a serious chat with my mum about just something that happened at the surgery Mm. and i thought the serious because their conversation ended with like that's great it's gonna be sorted then awesome fabulous and i went and i told my friend yeah i think my dad is just actually seems like he's ended all illness like (gasps) I think they've just figured it out He's there. It. And don't worry, tell the other kids 
There'll be no sniffles this Christmas time. I thought of your dad, like, pulling his baseball cap round and, like, walking off into the sunset having solved illness. He just needs to roll up his sleeves and crack on with it, you know? If your dad's on TV every Saturday morning and, like, Memphis wrestling is a cut above, even when the territories all got bought up and they all got consolidated in the WWF. That's it. Memphis, Memphis still. Was so... And, like, even if you compare it to other territories, like, if you compare it to, like, Florida, which, again, had this super hot, very loyal Local fan audience, base, yeah. But even the little I know, I know that Memphis had a hotter crowd. Like, yes. it was just, like, you had, like, a slightly older fan base, for one. You had all yep. these old people who'd bring weapons it, to it shows It lent stuff. into the emotive, like, heels with heat. You yeah. want to hear about Memphis heels and that Memphis style? Listen to our Andy Kaufman episode. Yeah. We, we kind of do a deep dive into it. But it's less about the physicality and more about riling people up. Yeah, and having those getting... strong emotions. Yeah, and, like, they would have... Saturday morning wrestling in Memphis, and you know when when Brian Christopher would have been you know one of the mainstays of that, they were still out drawing like primetime television on local stations, and people could look down their nose and go, "Wow, oh, that's local TV." It's not like still millions of people watching, that's it. still that, probably, you know. Because like if you put thousands in arenas, I mean, compare it to television ratings today. Yeah, I mean, it will outnumber the average. Outnumber fucking strictly, probably. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's insane to think about. It, it was appointment viewing. So I was shocked to find out, yeah, he had a, a lengthy career there because you're going to idolize your superstar dad anyway. Jerry seems to, I guess, not shy. There's a lot of, I think, wrestling parents who maybe want to keep a bit of a distance. Hmm. Heard about wrestlers who maybe definitely, they're like, I don't want my kid to get interesting. Full stop. Yeah. They're wrestlers who are like, I want them to make the decision themselves. So I'm going to put a bit of distance with it, not glamorize it because as a kid, you can kind of get you know, caught up in it and all that. I think Jerry went the other way because I think Jerry split from his wife who she had Brian and another son, Kevin, with quite early on. I think he was like four or five, yeah. you were saying. And, you know, Jerry showed up at Christmas birthdays. It's the superstar, your dad, you see on Saturday mornings. Here he is. And he'd have seamstresses like make costumes for them and they'd have their own wrestling federation with their I kids he got the actual seamsters who would have designed his costumes to make stuff for his kids like that's How a fucking lucky. dream i know so it's you know it's no no surprise whatsoever that he found himself in memphis then resting for a good few years and that was like a place for second generation stars but like it was a place where a lot of second generation stars jeff jarrett he would have been the son of the the promoter jerry jarrett was there you had uh flex cavana that's dwayne the rock johnson he would have first gone his sorry he was called flex cavana flex cavana a little, little a preview of the rock episode but wow. like you know there were that's where a lot of second generation stars went you had jt ice who was the son of bill dundee like you had a lot of sons of legendary wrestlers mm. who were all in that territory so you know it was kind of the hotbed for the next generation during that late 80s early 90s period is it true because i remember reading that brian christopher although he wasn't like introduced to wrestling by his dad he like him and his brother would do like spots in their living room or in their garden or something. It was like kind of like backyard wrestling before it was a, a thing. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think when backyard wrestling had a name and a term for it, that was kind of like late 90s or whatever yeah. it was. But like, 
kids were jumping off <laughs> jumping off the roofs of their house. Yeah. You know, Foley did that in the early 80s. I think there's a story about Brian Christopher doing a elbow drop off his mum's Christmas tree or something like that. Yeah, he destroyed the Christmas tree. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm very familiar with that as a man who, you know, broke a bed or a couch or two in his day, you know. Uh, that's very, very relatable, you know. But I remember reading that he didn't have any formal training when he first got signed and it was after that he got like... He's on the job training yeah. kind of. But look, that's, we've seen it so, so many times. So common, yeah. She's so many. Ric Flair, when we did his episode, it's like, oh yeah, you're yeah. going to do squats and do drills and all that. And oh yeah, by here's the way, match, yeah. here's your match. <laughs> Figure it out. wouldn't get that now. No, I mean, fucking <laughs> hell. I don't know how, how your insurance covers I untrained know. wrestlers. But again, like I think, yes, I understand the kind of, always there's going to be claims of, you know, Nepo baby when it's a second generation or third generation star. There's always going to be advantages. But I think there's a lot of a difference between a second or third generation star now in 2024 compared to back then when kayfabe is still a thing. Mm. Even, you know, the people know it's a fix. You have to, there's expectations you keep up the pretense of kayfabe. And, you know, Brian feuded with his dad early enough in his career. Oh, I'd fucking kill to watch one of those matches. Yeah, I'm always hoping that those USWA tapes, yeah. you know, USWA is kind of the, the leftovers of the Memphis and the Dallas territories that were kind of merged together. But there's a lot of gold from back in those days. And like, he was from the get-go proper charismatic supernova. Very much like was led to believe you're going to be the star. Very different from Scott now. Scott's kind of you know, paying his dues, working as a bank teller, doing job matches on the weekend. Brian Christopher is like, very early in his career, in his early 20s, he was like USWA heavyweight champion. He was the Southern champion. They had a gimmick where he would bring out his little red wagon because he's Jerry's kids and he'd have all of his belts in it. You know, and he was a superstar in, in that market. And so was he only pushed to that point because of Jerry kind of getting favours in for him? I mean, that definitely helped him. But I think he wouldn't... I mean, I always view... Eric Watts, he is the son of Bill Watts, who is the mm. promoter that Jim Ross learned under. We talked about him in our JR episode. And he was like, he just stank. David Flair was another guy who like, he was Rick's son. He just stank as well. Sometimes right. you have it, sometimes you don't. He didn't, neither of those guys had it. They tried to push them, nothing happens. It's just interesting that both those examples you gave, though, they were wrestling under their... They're given names. They're given name, but Brian Christopher, he never wrestled under Brian Christopher Lawler. Yeah, I know. Brian Lawler and... There's various viewpoints on this because we were looking, you know, some of his early career in WWF. It was very much played up as like a, a gimmick to kind of rile up the crowd that this guy, who's very obviously Jerry Lawler's son, we're going to pretend he's not Jerry's son. So everyone would chant Jerry's kid and all sorts of crazy stuff would happen. But in interviews later in his life, Jerry and Brian both said that the reason that they didn't give him the Brian Lawler name was because he'd want him to be able to stand on his own two feet mm. and to make his own name and not have the shadow yeah. of Lawler, you know, hanging over him. I do I do think that's really important. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, I'm sure there are, like, Randy Orton, I guess, he's a really successful yeah. wrestler who kept his, his given name. But, but... like, his, his dad was, like, he was a name and he was known, but he wasn't, a, you know, a legendary main event figure. Yeah, like, it's true. Randy's know. completely outgrown. Oh, yeah. His dad Bob, and his yeah. granddad by, by leaps and bounds. But, like, I can't think of any other wrestlers who kept their famous father's surname... Who then reached that level? It's very, very thin. Because even mean, Charlotte, Charlotte, she never know. wrestled as. Well, I mean, she does now. She does now, but she when she came up, she wouldn't wrestle as Charlotte Flair. She just wrestled as Charlotte. It's very rare, I think, that a promotion has the confidence to be like, 
we're not just putting this kid's reputation on the line. We're putting yeah. their parents' reputation on the line. And then, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, would have claimed that, like, oh, the reason that Jerry Lawler didn't want, you know, Brian using his name was because he didn't want people to know that he was old enough to have a kid who was as old as Brian Christopher was. Yeah, that's what I heard. But, like, they used that as heat. Like, yeah. they used to say that all the time. Jerry would, like, literally say, ah, I can't be my kid. I'm, I'm, I'm too young and virile and handsome. So I think there is you know elements of truth to, to all of that i think mm. to to an extent so we did watch some of brian's early career in wwf he was brought in as well as scott as part of that light heavyweight division the difference is scott was like just a body like a name to fill out a tournament or whatever they brought in brian christopher with the idea is that he would be the star of that division and he was so charismatic from the get-go mm. he's not grandmaster sexy he's too sexy brian christopher and boy, oh boy, like, I had no idea how entertaining this guy was when I first started podcasting. We did season four, 97 for the ITR podcast. Instantly became one of my faves. Yeah. And, like, I think seeing your reaction to him when he came out, like, your face lit up. This guy has something. I love him. How I would love you, him so much. <laughs> how would you describe Like, there's a lot of people I think who are assuming because he's Jerry Lawler's son and you're no fan of Jerry Lawler. I believe last episode you said you wanted him to explode. <laughs> <laughs> That you would, by proxy, hate Brian Christopher from the out, out the gates. But that's the thing. Like, I hate Jerry Lawler as a human being. I think he has no soul. I think he's pure evil incarnate. But I love him as a wrestler. That, My a, God, every I do. time it's come up with him wrestling, you, you have this, like... I just love him. <laughs> ...twinkle in your eye. <laughs> and also, I'm not so hardened that I'm going to pin Jerry Lawler's real life crimes on his son yeah he has nothing to do with what his father has done and, like, yeah. I'm not gonna hate him for the actions of someone else and you can probably pick an episode of this podcast and the wrestler that we've enjoyed in the ring or on the mic or whatever it is and they're probably not a particularly nice person in real no. life that is kind of I think that's the Faustian bargain you make by being a wrestling fan who cares about kind of anything beyond just yeah. what you see you know, I think you should be kind of aware of these things, I guess, always. But yeah, his um, his charisma is a particular type of charisma, though. Because it's not like he's this warm, inviting individual where you want to be like, or like he's kind of particularly, I don't know, he has got an off vibe to him, <laughs> is the nicest way of putting it. Maybe it's because when he comes out and he flexes, he literally tongues his biceps. <laughs> and like, he's always like touching his fucking nipples and rubbing himself. <laughs> His laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he's really like zeroed in. And you can tell this is from being in Memphis. Mm. He's zeroed in on all these little things that just make an audience go. Ugh. He reminds me so much of Jerry Lawler, to be honest. Like mm. he's taken Jerry's performances and like gone, okay, what if instead of a nasty heel, he was like, you know, a snivelling, annoying heel. Yeah. But and like, like almost a psychotic edge to him though. It's like Jerry Lawler is really annoying, but he's never really booking himself as an annoying man. Yeah. But obviously they've got a gene in their DNA that makes them fucking annoying because like Brian Christopher is wonderfully annoying. There's a way that you can be annoying that will like get heat with an audience he's really and make them want to shout at you, yeah. you know? And he just comes off as really smug. Yeah. <laughs> and from the little bits I know about him in real life, it seems like he was quite a lot like that anyway. He was quite arrogant. Yes, he, he had a lot of self-love, let's just say. Yeah. He was very confident in himself and there was always talk that he you know, viewed himself in his mind he was a main event level talent. But it's so you know? funny because I would think, like everything I know about 
people who see themselves as main event talent. Like, say, if we were to compare him to Taz. Yeah. Taz takes himself way too seriously. You would never allow him, his character to be annoying. Yeah, that's, that's like true. burying yourself. But Brian Christopher seems to really lean into it and give it his all. Yeah, there's very much this kind of apparent ability to draw on that energy. Like, let it fuel you. Do more things. Just the way that he's... Like, he smiles is so, like, he fucking twists his face. You want to punch him in the face. Yeah, he, he twists his face into this really horrible visage. He he is always mouthing off. Like, there are wrestlers where if fans will chant at them, you know, saying, you know, they always chant Jerry's kid at him or whatever it is. Yeah. And there's wrestlers who'll be like, hey, stop that. Or like, shut up or point at someone. Mm. He'll stand on the top rope. That's He'll it. wave his arms around. He'll put his hands on his ears go, no! It's dialed up to 20 in an era when we were probably dialing it up to like 11 or 12 Mm. it is both like kind of a throwback in some ways like it almost feels like it's not for tv it's for kind of like a house show vibe or something like that yeah and i just like love that so much because i'm a simple man joe i want my heels to point at stuff and make me go oh yeah i don't want necessarily in every match to have the kind of the hope come from a wrestler grinding someone down or me like just seeing them get beat up over and over again and wanting to see them overcome that that's great but sometimes i just want to see an asshole be an asshole and yeah, shut them up exactly it's wild to me to think what a natural heel this guy is when my main memories of him as a kid are like he's the guy whose dance moves i'm going to assign every single one of them to me in the wrestling game all his taunts are my dance moves that's what i want and yet it feels like he's destined to be like he's a creepy dude he's so creepy and there's ways where he can be creepy in wrestling where it's just kind of like a bad vibe but But yeah he's not sinister creepy he's just like icky creepy like you don't want to see him get punched you're like yes yeah awesome he got hit we watched a lot of his early matches in that light heavyweight division with Jerry kind of playing innocent on commentary that he has no idea who this handsome, <laughs> talented. talented, great wrestler. You know, people like would make out like, oh, it was a, you know, it was a shoot that Jerry didn't want people to know. Mm. But like some of the matches, like he's actually wrestling Takovich Noku for the light heavyweight belt. And Jerry's like, I can't wait for Brad to win this match. And then that light heavyweight title is going to go on our ma- on his mantelpiece. <laughs> Like they are clearly playing this up for silly yucks and for over the top reactions. I think one of the first appearances we saw of him, Paul Heyman, happened to be on commentary. Oh, I've heard about this. I mean, this you is... saw us. Well, I mean, I've heard about it as well, though, because this apparently got heat between Heyman and Jerry. <laughs> they want to kind of allude to it, right? And JR's like, hey, Paul. You got something to say about Brian Christopher over here? Oh, coward JR doesn't want to say it himself. Right? You, you say it. <laughs> hey, Paul, I, I don't, can I rally up? Oh, you want me to shoot JR? You want me to shoot from the hip? Jerry Lawler's son is Brian Christopher. And by the way, his mother must have only been 31 years old. And like, he literally, in one fell soup, he's like, that is Jerry Lawler's son, and Jerry Lawler's a pedophile. That's, that's in one, And that's on Raw, folks, by the way. Look. No one loves calling Jerry Lawler a paedophile as much as I do, okay? But there's a time and a place. But that's it, there's a time and a place. And that's like <laughs> not a fun thing to say. And that's not the fun circumstances under which to say it. Like, you are just taking the fun away from a really fun situation. You're just kicking over someone's sandcastle and then making a joke about real-life paedophilia. Yeah, I think there's a lot of 
heat and there's a lot of like pure easy time good fun to be had with like they do things like just cut to the two of them on commentary and they both be going ha ha at the same like exactly like mirroring each they other look so alike yeah they look so like they they wrestle a similar style yeah. even though brian incorporates a lot of like quite hard hitting like light heavyweight moves yeah like, he does sick kicks drop kicks stuff like that a lot more athletic than jerry probably naturally was yes and the the parallels are so funny and you're seeing it in like a light heavyweight matches where you're not necessarily expecting there to be comedy but like for me that that made that one of the most see parts in 1997. That yeah. is my guilty pleasure viewing. Watch any of the Brian Christopher stuff from 97 always makes me laugh. It's like, honestly, Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan <laughs> levels of just good, silly fun. I wish at some point Brian Christopher had been given a king gimmick because the thought of like a king and a mini king and they both have red face. No, shut up, that. Shits. They would call him the prince or something like that. But like, I thought that was a really good way of like having fun with it mm. without giving him the you know the, the the albatross around his back of like hey you're jerry lawler's son hey, everyone it, this is jerry this is yeah. the king 2.0 or whatever once you do that i think the fans more so than wrestlers will start putting not a target on your back but like a clock on your yeah. back of like right you gotta you Time gotta to become a big legend yeah become as big a legend as your father or more so yeah i think that's the a, 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 a surprisingly conscientious way of booking him yeah so he is kind of made out to be like the, the big star in the tournament just in the fact That's that so he strange is though because like how he's not that type of character yeah and i guess you can be the big star of a division when the division is kind of like small you know and not right. just not stature i just meant that it was a small part like we watched probably his entire light heavyweight run in like an hour because right. all the matches are like three or four minutes long or whatever yeah. it is his match with Takamichinoku that we watched mm. at the uh, In Your House DX, absolutely like fantastic. If you want my favorite type of like crossover of styles, it's hard hitting Takamichinoku doing death defying leaps and Brian Christopher with a bloody mouth pointing at stuff and making <laughs> crack go. That for me is like a perfect type of encounter, you mm. know. So he fights Scotty a couple of times in this light heavyweight division, and they are literally just thrown together in a tag team they needed bodies for this battle royale they were doing at wrestlemania and like look neither of you are doing much so scott taylor you team up with uh with brian christopher here and you're going to be called too much that's it you got too sexy brian christopher and too hot scott taylor and they're just kind of a tag team of creepy little dudes right just you know very rarely are people tagged for the first time ever at wrestlemania yeah and Braun Strowman and Nicholas is the only other one I can really think of. Shane McMahon and Daniel Bryan. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's their kind of their genesis together. But the idea is that they're both going to be like kind of a similar character, the kind of self-obsessed, creepy little dudes. So did they have the kind of the hip hop gimmick at this point? No, they were just too much. Just basically like Brian Christopher's gimmick multiplied by two. Right, okay. And Scott like... I'm amazed at how quickly he was able to swap gears from being like a kind of a characterless, just a guy. You know, he's a jobber, Scott Taylor, here he is. Look at the fire on this man with a mullet. (laughs) To being able to be kind of like a mirror image, but slightly different, but like a a 1A and 1B of the same kind of character, of this kind of creepo dude who, you know, instead of just touching themselves all the time, they'd be hugging each other and like Mm -hmm. rubbing each other on the head, leading into that old school kind of, 
you know, re- tag teams who are a little bit f- too friendly and familiar with themselves. That didn't even occur to me. You know, they, you know, they tag each other. They like they'd hug. That's you know, nice. slap each other on the back, pat each other on the bottom. And what I've often find is gimmicks like that back in the day that were meant to like make fans go like boo. You always are just like, oh, they're sweet. <laughs> they're a tag team who like to hug and appreciate each other's body. Yeah. So their first kind of. Claim to fame or big run was when they were roped into Al Snow's feud with Jerry the King Lawler, who had promised Al Snow a character who had uh, had like a mental breakdown in kayfabe and was talking to a mannequin head. He had been promised a, a meeting with Vince McMahon by Jerry Lawler so Jerry would get him to do some kind of you know, odd jobs and misdeeds for him. And Jerry had been telling tall tales. Al kept hounding him, trying to get himself a job. And Jerry decided the only way out of this was to book a tag team match with Al Snow and the Mannequin Head taking on Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor and too much. And this is at King of the Ring 1998, our first match that we're going to run through here for our How To Cool episode. I still don't really understand how this came about. Like, why... Why did they have to go up against Al Snow and Head? Because Jerry Lawler wanted to get rid of Al Snow forever. And if Al Snow lost this match, he would not only not get to meeting with Vince McMahon, he'd be barred from the WWF forever. So he'd he'd be sent packing, basically. Now, it's difficult with me talking to Joe about Al Snow because I think you've watched all of the wrestlers on Netflix. Yeah. I don't think Al Snow endeared himself to a new generation of fans on that particular documentary series no what are your thoughts on al because he was one of my faves as a kid i mean all i really know about him is the bits i've seen in tough enough and then the bits from the wrestlers he was so much nicer on tough enough somehow was he though (laughs) Uh, he seems um he seems like a not particularly love like not particularly nice man Um, yeah takes himself really seriously for some reason yeah i get that you have to in wrestling particularly if you don't i mean to an extent, if you're going to be like someone who works in an office or be a booker or anything like that, I always remember beyond the mat that thing where like you have to, the, the promoters like if you're not like kind of taking yourself seriously and being tough, you know they'll walk all over you because they're all such big egos and such forces of nature. These wrestlers, but Al just seems like a fucking curmudgeon, I guess. Yeah, is, is more than anything. Son a bit of a bitch. bitter, Seaman. Definitely. This match is one of the things that he feels very bitter about. Yeah, and we'll get into it. This match was probably the first time I think I saw either of these guys. I remember this This was a very early pay-per-view. Probably the first pay-per-view I watched start to finish when I was a kid. And I remember like years later, me and my cousin, when we were like you know, loving too cool and dancing around, we'd pop in his old King of the Ring 98 VHS and be like, wait, that's that's Grandmaster Sexy and Scotty Too Hotty. They were in WrestleMania 2000 on the N64 as too much. And by oh. that time, we had seen them as too cool. So me and my brother were like, why are they like one of only two characters in the game that they program the audience to boo? <laughs> like Jericho would be in the game, he would raise his hands and people would go boo, or too much would come out and raise their hands and they would go boo. No one else. That's it. I think Shane as well, wow. but no one else. Like no the Undertaker, else. Vince McMahon, everyone's fine with them in, in the N64 audience. What? But they they made these guys get booed because they were such weird little guys. Yeah. Little goblins coming out here for their match against Al Snow and Ted's. Jerry is surprise referee, and he's even got a special top. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a quite a long referee shirt he's got going on him there. He's got kind of a lazy Sunday vibes as the referee here. I think he should have gotten it like bedazzled so it matches his other tasteless clothing. 
Were you excited to see Jimmy Lawler in a refereeing role? Yeah. You know, he is a, a master at being a piece of shit when mm. it comes to being a heel in wrestling. Yeah. Al Snow has got a tag team partner who's a mannequin head. Right, yeah, which, head. Yeah, this makes obviously a difficult uh, tag match to build around, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit confusing. First of all, what gender is head? It's a, it's a lady's mannequin head. Yeah, but what gender is head? I don't know. No one ever think... referred to it with pronouns? Well, I'll always refer to it kind of in the second person. We're like, you, you are saying this to me in a, or, or there. Mm, mm. I think I'll refer to it with, with male pronouns. If I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess that. Like, yeah, I was just wondering know. if this is an intergender match or not. <laughs> Interesting to note that. Like, but yeah. yeah, it's it's certainly a kind of a, a freak match in many respects. Mm. The audience are a little bit confused by it because Al keeps kind of going to the corner to build for a hot tag with a mannequin head. People love the the gimmick of the heads yeah but i think you are seeing an audience who are audibly confused by what's actually going to happen in this match yeah am i right in thinking this would be a vince russo idea yes yeah 100 percent. although that being said al snow came up with heads in oh, yeah, yeah. ecw which mcfoley takes credit for as well right yes <laughs> we get a couple of good moments where although brian christopher doesn't outright call jerry dad he does keep like kind of turning to him to like complain about stuff like dad. a moment where al snow starts like pulling on his hair and he's like dad al snow's pulling on my hair uh, jerry is great at this being this absolute piece of crap referee because he pulls him back and he's like hey al he admonishes him and all that and then Brian Christopher literally, you know, gets his hands up high so everyone can see them, digs them into Al's hair, clenches the fist, twists the fingers, grabs yeah. both, and he's like, Aah! and Jerry's like, okay, that's great, that's fine. <laughs> Good Come job, on. son. Back it up now. One, two, <laughs> three. I'll tell you what, Scott Taylor, he has got some serious moves. He is low key one of the most athletic people who was on the roster at this point. Just like little things like the fact that he can backflip on his own back over Al so quickly yeah, so easily it's amazing yeah and he's got like you know some breakdancing a little bit of uh, moonwalking yeah. a little bit he of uh, moonwalk yeah he can obviously do the worm <laughs> but he doesn't do the worm here he doesn't do it here no but it's interesting though that the breakdancing stuff is kind of used for heel heat here a guy moonwalking which I always think is the most impressive thing in the world is a man who can't moonwalk mm. he actually gets booze when he moonwalks over to get himself a tag at one point which yeah. I think is very funny Joe, how's your moonwalking ability? I know you had moon boots at one point. Did mm. that enable you to moonwalk? No, you can't moonwalk in moon boots. What? Well, you probably could if you were really good at it, but <laughs> I can't. But I did used to be able to moonwalk. Really? Mm. Used to practice a lot. Back. Used to. It's one of these things like riding a bike that you you can kind of you can lose it, can you? Well, I don't know. I've never tr- I haven't tried in years. The last time I tried, I was about 16, 17. But I used to do these panto shows and we're doing these village halls where they'd varnish the floors Ah. so it's very like slippery wood okay and at the time i was wearing these like massive skater shoes which had very flat bottoms you need you need a certain type of floor and a certain type of shoe to moonwalk if you're learning and i literally because we'd have loads of time just like waiting around so i I taught myself how to moonwalk but i don't think i probably could if I had a slippery floor or the right shoes, I could probably do a, a shit moonwalk. Next time I've mopped the floor in the kitchen, yeah. we're moonwalking, baby. I have to find the right shoes. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think every single child who I danced with as part of my too cool phase claimed that they could moonwalk and then would tap the floor with their foot and claim that either the floor or the shoes or a combination of the both were the reason that they couldn't do it right now, but they can. And their uncle works for Nintendo and he absolutely <laughs> can unlock Own Heart and No Mercy. They've got the special code for their Game Shark. 
just some little random things where they go out of their way at the start to have like you know show jerry being like kind of he's officiating but being really ridiculous like you know when he's counting the pin for al he runs his hand underneath brian's shoulders to make sure it's fully fully flush yeah, with between the mask every count he's like you know, one just checking your shoulders are still on the floor two just still there? check it again okay but then there's other points where like al's about to punch brian he just like grabs his hand and goes no <laughs> don't punch my son i don't want you to Brian Christopher's selling as well is yeah. ridiculous. It is like so funny. Panto, like he literally looks like he's looking at his dad being like, the bully hit me, dad. What are you going to do? <laughs> at one point, Jerry, when uh, Scott Taylor has been worked over, he just kind of grabs him and just like kind of pulls him into the corner <laughs> to let him tag. And as much as the crowd seemed to be kind of grumbling at the heel work, I can't help but love when heel work gets so ridiculous, it enters another universe of yeah, logic. I love it. I, I love this stuff so much. Al gets the hot tag to head, <laughs> and we get a great line on commentary from JR saying, Hair does the legal man. What am I saying? JR does not like nope. any of this. He's on his own, so there's no one there to kind of inject him a bit of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, folks, the mannequin head is, is in the match. It's legal. Where am I here? Bill Watts, uh, hopefully not watching the broadcast tonight. <laughs> uh, over 100 countries watching from around the world. And, uh, folks, I apologize for the uh, the match you're about to see here. The snowplow gets hit on Scott Taylor. That's Al's finishing move. Jerry doesn't count. But in fairness, Al's snow wasn't legal because he had tagged in yeah, the mannequin head, head yeah. which he hit everyone with. And then some clumsy wordplay and a visual gag that also claims derailed his entire career is how we finished the match. Joe, I want to know your thoughts on how Head lost the pinfall here. Right. It's so stupid, but I understand it's not for me, so it's okay. (laughs) Who is it for? It's for children. It's for the little kids like you who are watching at the time. They have a bottle of Head and Shoulders, and then they stick it on Head, and then they use that to pin Head, because technically Head's Shoulders... From the head and shoulders model. <laughs> and Al Snow, the way he describes it in the rest of his documentary, he's literally like Austin talking about taking his ball and going yeah. home. It's like, and then backstage, Jerry Lawler had come up with a joke and he said, What if we had a bottle of head and shoulders? And I said, That's great, King. Hmm. The biggest regret of my career. Yeah. I wake up in the middle of the night covered in a cold sweat going, <laughs> no, Jerry, that's not actually that funny. We shouldn't do it. And as if you don't get it at home. Me and my cousin, we were obsessed with this. We would have the finger on the rewind button on the VHS so we could go back to Brian Christopher going, he thought the head couldn't be pinned, but the head, and he holds it right up to the camera, it had shoulders. (laughs) Yes, show, don't tell. (laughs) Show and tell. Yes. And tell again. (laughs) I have kind of mixed feelings about this. Yeah, I don't know whether you're going to like this or not. Well, I think it's really stupid. But not necessarily that it's bad. Like it, I, I don't find it that funny. I would have preferred if they'd set it up a bit with like someone bringing up the idea of how do you pin a mannequin head, so that that question is in your mind and you're thinking about it. Because it's a bit too much at the end. But it's just like, well, why do you need a head and shoulders bottle? No one said that you couldn't just pin head as is. There was yes. no rule decreeing that. I think it's a case in point of coming up with a funny concept yeah. and everyone's like that's a really funny concept because that's a pun it is it's a play on words Jerry yeah. but execution you're like okay and I'm amazed that they did this how they managed to find a way to affix the yeah. head and shoulders bottle to the mannequin head perfect size but in terms of an arena of like 
12 or 13,000 folks there in Pittsburgh that night. I don't think the people in the front row back really could tell that that was a bottle of head and shoulders. Yeah. It looked like just a white object. Also, the <laughs> fact that Cherry is referee, again, kind of takes away from this for me. And I, I know I'm overthinking it. I know I'm overthinking it. But I can't but Joe, help you're it. you're not meant to think. That's it. It's, it's not for me. It's what for, are you, a mock? You thinking? Have fun, yeah. <laughs> but like, Jerry's the, Jerry's the special referee. He could have disqualified Al for not being the legal man and trying to get the pin or whatever. I think like, that would have been, a, yeah. He has so much power. Or if even the other way around, if you'd had like, not Jerry Lawler, but a regular referee being like, well, obviously, because I'm fair, we can't count this as a pin because he's got no shoulders. And then that's how the, you know, the Weasley heels get around it. Yeah. But having both doesn't make sense. They're trying to do too much at once, I think. Yeah. yeah. But look, it doesn't matter because fuck me, it gets over. <laughs> so many tweets to us about this spot. Really? Yes. Absolutely. That's it so funny. really has stuck with fans. Like, I mean... Look, I, I get it, because if I'd seen this when I was 10, I'd have fucking loved it. I'd have, I'd have probably... <laughs> I don't know if I've ever gotten over it. It's such a funny idea. I mean, there was a period of time, you know, from the ages of 12 to 14, where I couldn't use head and shoulders without saying, the head, it had shoulders. <laughs> uh, I would say there's a little part of me that likes this match now more, knowing that Al Snow hates this, and he yeah. attributes it to somehow this self-inflicted downward spiral that his career did not undergo. It was absolutely was not the death nail on any sort of coffin for him. That kind of, I don't know what, what when someone takes something really personally and is really sensitive about it and rest yeah. like that, it does make it a little bit funnier to me. I don't really understand though, because he lost, that means he was, what, fired? But it's just a Russo thing where it's like, oh, the next week he came back and they're like, oh, he's got another chance because there's another piece of paper that says oh, he gets, right. you know, it's... They, it, logic went out the window in favour of a laboured pun. It's such a shame because with just a little bit more planning, I feel this could have been an epic reveal yes of like you thought there was no chance well there was and i think as well in terms of getting over like because they were like at that point they were only ever on shotgun they were a total jobber tag team Mm. they had no notoriety using king who's the annoying bastard on commentary that's always praising vince mcmahon and the corporation all these heels you hate having him be like hey these two guys here that's a really effective way of getting a a heel team over you know of having them be endorsed through chicanery by a non-wrestling character who is a bad guy, you mm. know? I think they could easily do... You have someone like fucking Corey Graves be like, I like this tag team and help them win a match or whatever. It's it's cheap, yeah, but it, yeah. it does work. How do you rate a match like this, Joe? Because I'm very intrigued. You're at the crossroads of things that you seem to adore and love, but also maybe get a bit frustrated by at some points as well. I have struggled to give ratings to all of the matches that we've done for this episode, because of the nature of Too Cool, really. Because it's not really about the matches. It's about the spots and the gimmick. And the expectations are not necessarily you're going to get like a you know a, a big wrestling clinic. A lot of the matches are quite short tonight, folks. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of extra viewing that will, will pop in the, the, the page on HGWrestling.com as a result. There's a lot of, 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 a lot of short stuff from these guys. And it's not like Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor are bad wrestlers. They're both incredibly good wrestlers. Yes. It's just, it's not supposed to be about them as wrestlers, really. It's very often that people will look at the spots and the things that the match or the writing has required and go, they're bad wrestlers as a result. And yeah. the reality is, is the reason they're given this type of silly, overbearing, comedy-heavy, spot-heavy match is because they are both very competent, yeah. capable wrestlers. Which you, yeah, you have to be to pull off 
a yes. gimmick like this. Absolutely. A lot of the comedy wrestlers tend to actually be mm-hmm. between the ropes that are a lot more savvy than you would have them yeah. believe. So I gave this ugh, like a three out of five. Oh, okay. Not really sure how to <laughs> review it, but it was definitely fun. I loved seeing heel Jerry Lawler as a referee and I loved Too Cool being too much. Yeah. Were you in, were you like shocked that they were this kind of creepo version of themselves before they were this kind of good time family friendly? Nah, not at all. Yeah. But they're not, they're, I mean, are they creepy? They are kind of. But like, how are they more creepy than they were as Too Cool? <laughs> I don't know. They're tryhards. That's uh, like their whole thing. As mentioned uh, previously, in 1998, if you're like hugging and, you know, tapping each other on the butt and rubbing your nipples between tags. Did they stop doing that when they were Too Cool? Yeah. Yeah, oh. they they stopped doing the creepy weird shit when it's they so were creepy. It's for the nice. late nineties. It is very very nice that these two tag wrestlers like each other a lot. But unfortunately, after this, and this is kind of uh, happens throughout the run of Too Cool, and the fact that their momentum does seem to continue on an upward trajectory, regardless, is really shocking to me because. During the Attitude Era, man, if you weren't on TV every week, that was it, you're done, on to the next thing. There was a million people lined up to take your spot. And quite shortly after this, Brian Christopher got a fairly bad injury. He tore a tendon, which meant that he was going to be out for like six or seven months. Which tendon? I think it was his ACL. I'm not not 100% on that, but he had a few injuries throughout his main run on the WWF. Right. Which is kind of like bad timing, I guess. So all during that period... Scott Taylor kept wrestling as a job guy, except now he's a job guy with a character because right. he was a creepy, too hot Scott Taylor. But he started on Metal and Jacked and stuff doing more breakdancing stuff, started incorporating more of those dance moves he picked up when he was a kid in New England on the indie scene yeah, for heel heat. Don't really understand how he learned breakdancing while being a wrestler. Oh, just because when he was a kid, like it was just what people were doing. Like, you know, it, just, it was an interest of his. He had friends who danced and they just, they did wow. that. They learned breakdancing moves. So cool. It is. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Like, that's a pretty cool skill. We had yo-yos and, you know, finger yeah. skateboards. I would have taken breakdancing. I feel breakdancing didn't make its way over to the part of the UK I grew up in. I'm not, I think it probably was more of a thing in like Birmingham and London, like cities. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a week or two when people all tried to do the Spinneroonie in 2001, but that was, kind of <laughs> that was probably a short lived thing for us. I am very envious of people who grew up in areas where you could just look out of your window and see like a bunch of kids break dancing. Pretty dang cool. Free entertainment for you. Very cool. So speaking of cool, when Brian makes his way back a few months later, We've got a new idea for the tag team. And this is a Vince Russo classic where you give someone a concept that's kind of vague and maybe not entirely thought out all the way through to the end. But you give enough latitude for the talented performers who've been given this gimmick to maybe fill in the blanks themselves, Mm. turn up the volume a little bit and figure out what they want to do. His whole idea was, you know the way you guys is too much? Well, instead, we're going to call you too cool. And the idea is... Used to think that you're too cool, but in reality, you're not. So they're still heels. They're heels? I. But they're meant to be cool, but they're not. (laughs) What a That's such a great fill in the blank gimmick. I have to grieve the passing of the name too much, though, because it is probably my favorite wrestling team name of all time. Too sexy, too hot. Together, they are too much. Yeah. Fantastic. So good. But yeah, too cool. That's, um,. 
an interesting one that they were still booked as heels at this point. I don't really understand why they rebranded them if they weren't going to change their... They weren't going to make them babyface. I think Russo wanted to hit the kind of the zeitgeist a little bit more at the time. And we're talking about, you know, late 1999, something that certainly was prolific a lot you had pretty fly for a while cake coming out around that time and there was you know you know eminem had been kind of quite prolific and like i remember like late 1999 boy oh boy that's like when like everyone <laughs> me and all my white male friends all got into rap at that point in time and you see it a lot during that early 2000s late 1999 period there was a lot of white guys who started wanting to dress up like their hero rappers some who were white some who were black tried to speak in a bonics and wear baggy clothes and i think there was an idea that this could get heel heat they had these two guys who were had like their fake dreadlocks in their beanie hats and their big silly sunglasses wearing loads of chains their pants down by their their knees and their underwear showing i think the idea that there was going to be some heel heat in these two you know southern white boys trying to you know take kind on of, black culture yeah nick black culture and be like yo 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 yeah. we're, and then they would say like we watched some of their early promos and it's like purposely eye-rolling cringe stuff where they're like we are the innovators we are the originators we are the master i mean the percolators <laughs> like these idiots who like are so laser focused and trying to come off a certain way that they are in fact just total gobshites yeah and like hey take it from me there were no shortage of my friends in school who were like acting like gobshites because they listened to one snoop dogg record or one eminem cd and all of a sudden they thought they were like you know like you don't understand growing up on the mean streets yeah. of Navin, like how tough it is. I'm basically like Dr. Dre if he was 13 and from Kells, okay? So, you know, I think it was hitting on a lot of that. And I think in America, that was, you know, probably a lot more yeah. um, not- noticeable in, in the cities and stuff like that. What I don't really understand, I know this is something we've actually been asked through the tweets as well, is like what they actually changed about the gimmick when they transitioned from heels into faces. It's funny because like not a whole lot in many ways. And like I remember watching week to week at the time, JR, these guys would come out and be like, look at this guy, pants hang around his ankles. He calls himself Grandmaster Sexay. What is that? This is ridiculous. Like total burying them as like jokes idiots dressing up like trying to like wearing all the shit in the ring you know grandmaster sexy would have like two hats scotty would have an upside down you know an upside down hat on them they'd wear their you know trousers back to front they'd have like <laughs> like 10 chains two pairs of fucking sunglasses on them they were like yeah total ridiculous and just one week all of a sudden they were part of this kind of group of heel tag teams that were kind of feuding with each other like the Dudleys and the Hollies and Too Cool. They're all bad guys. They're all feuding with each other. Everyone was silent during it. And then one week, they were being beaten up in a match by Val Venus and the British Bulldog, mm. who were separately, they had a problem with Rikishi. And Rikishi... Sorry, in storyline. In storyline. Mm. And Rikishi had just kind of returned, you know, as a kind of a nameless or a gimmickless just, here's Rikishi Fatu. He came out, he cleared the ring and just beat up those two guys. And... Grandmaster Sexay and Scotty Too Hottie were like the two nerd idiots who had been saved. They're like, oh, come in, come in the ring. Dance with us, dance with us. And Rikishi just was like, come on. Like, you know, this silent, powerful Samoan. And all of a sudden he's like, actually, you know what? Takes the glasses and he has a little dance with them. And he runs, you know, he's an amazing dancer. Yeah. And you've got these two wannabe white boy rapper guys doing their kind of really clunky, silly dance moves. And there's this fucking big, beautiful Samoan in the middle of the ring 
running circles around them. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was literally it. Next week they came out. JR was still kind of being like, oh, look at these idiots. But like, people started cheering for them because they liked the dance. So they weren't booked any differently from then on. It was just the people started cheering. They stopped having them do promos where they were like, literally making themselves out to be purposeful fools. Right. And they stopped, you know, attacking good guy teams and they stopped being presented as heels. And was Rikishi, when he did this with them, was he a heel or a face? He was a good guy, but he was also, like, not really... He didn't speak much. He didn't, you know, have a lot of character. He Mm. was very kind of plainly presented, so to speak. Right. So this gave him, you know, in the Rikishi episode, this gave him a whole new lease. Yeah, it gave him depth and gives them kind of, gives them legitimacy. Yeah, exactly. And like, the fun thing, funny, weird thing about this is that no one thought this was a good idea in the group themselves. Rikishi didn't want to be put with them. They didn't want Rikishi to be put with them either. They thought it wouldn't work because they're both pointing at each other going, they're going to steal my spot because they're both kind of very fresh, new, you know, blossoming yeah, gimmicks. Fragile. No one want. No one wants to risk that. So why would we add this in together? So whose idea was that then? Russo's. Well, no. By this time, I think uh, Russo actually would have been gone. Oh. So it just would have been like kind of the committee of writers that they had at the moment. You know, Vince and Stephanie would have been writing there as well. I don't think a lot of thought was put into it, other than. They pop for the dance, so let's stick them together. Wow. So yeah, we had a lot of the early outings of them where they, you know, they'd come out doing their crazy over-the-top dances. But Rikishi always was this stoic figure who'd walk out very, very, you know, pensively to the ring, and then after the match, that's it. Then the music hits. Yes. And like, boom. He would <laughs> always feign sheepishness that he doesn't want to get involved. He just want to do it, and then they give him the glasses, and that's a, it. Suddenly becomes this thing that in the middle of the wrestling show. The entire audience, who are led to believe at this point the LTR want blood, guts, bra, panties. They're just going, yay, dancing. Yeah. And like, we watched, I think, nearly every single Too Cool dance number where they involved other people. Yeah. By God, this thing got over. Yeah, it did. Everyone, like, one thing about everyone chanting, if you get everyone overhead clapping in unison, mm-hmm. that's very impressive. Yeah. Very impressive indeed. The new names, of course, as well, of Grandmaster Sexay and Scotty Too Hottie. Scotty Too Hottie was a name that he was apparently called just by people backstage. Road Dog used to call him, oh, it's Scotty Too Hottie. So you just, yeah, I'll, I'll use that. Fine. Wild to think, as well, that Grandmaster Sexay and Scotty Too Hottie never were friends. That's weird. I don't like that. They only shared a hotel room during their entire career once. That's so strange. And that was apparently at Own Hart's funeral where they just kind of automatically put all the tag teams together because WWE booked all their flights and like, oh, look, you're all going to share rooms or whatever it is. That's but really sad. It is sad because I think there's always Why? a part of me that assumes that if you have chemistry in a tag team, you have to be friends. Well, also just like, surely they would have spent so much time together. Like, yeah. Why wouldn't they have been friends? Like, it's just strange. It's very, very peculiar. And I know, like, part of this is, like, me as a modern fan, where, like, everyone in wrestling is friends. Like, if you're not <laughs> friends, you're fucking mortal enemies and suing each other. But, like, yeah. for the most part, everyone in wrestling is friends with each other. It's a very small, tight-knit community. Yeah. But it's just so, like... Because, like, yeah, these days you have wrestlers who've, like, never technically worked together, who are in different promotions, maybe even live in different countries, who are really good friends. And they call each other up all the time, like, hey, man, how you doing? And how are your kids and stuff? There's a lot lot of people who don't do that, though, you know? But, like, to to work so closely with someone and not have at least a bit of a friendship is so strange. Well, sure, Bob Ray and Devon Dudley, like, were apparently never particularly close either, you know? at least with them. 
they're both fucking weirdos. Yeah, they I are. Mean... They're weird. They're weird men, and I can understand. Like, I, I would not want to be fucking friends with uh, with Bubba Ray. He's a freak. <laughs> I think it's very interesting though when you look at the two cool from the outside. You know, just as a regular old fan, you kind of go, "Wow, well, look, two guys who like to dance. Yeah, they're having so much fun. They're having so much fun together. They're letting us have fun together. But they're two very different types of guys." You know, Scotty, again, very, like, much the professional workman-like wrestler. Mm. Brian Christopher, as Grabmaster Sex say, this, apparently this this new character gave him, like, new levels of, of kind of ego and, and hype and whatnot. He loved being this character. He loved having all the crazy gimmicks on him. Apparently, they'd leave the shows and he'd go to get some tea. He'd still be wearing all the gear, like the two pairs of sunglasses. He just loved it. I think it was very um important to him maybe that he was able to stand up on his own two feet and be a worldwide celebrity Mm. with no knowledge for the fans that he was jerry lawler's son because they didn't go on about jerry lawler being his dad on commentary when he was grandmaster sexy that was never part of the gimmick Mm. so i think for him it was vindication that he was successful and this was his route to having that success well i imagine as well if you're a memphis wrestler where the whole you know you're raised as a wrestler to believe the biggest success you can get is a reaction yeah and here you have two cool who have like who are the most over they get the biggest pop of the night every time we watched the royal rumble 2000 which involves their all coming out while rikishi's in the ring he clears the ring as the powerhouse grandmaster's left there and he's like oh man don't throw me over the top rope the next entry comes out it's scotty too hottie they do a full dance number and they're in msg so that's like huge the most hardcore New York old school WBF crowd that you can possibly get. And I think it's so funny is that at the start, Jim Ross is like, oh, well, we've seen it all now, folks. Time for a little dancing, I guess. Like he thinks it's like throwaway. It is electric. Mm. The entire arena is dancing along with them. They're all clapping in unison. People are just screaming pure joy. And then like JR at the end is like, everyone in MSG and the big man is busting a move. Like he gets like wound up in it. And if JR gets wound up in dancing. Yeah. And like this doesn't always work. You know, sometimes people want you to dance in wrestling and you don't really feel it. I always felt really bad for... Or Truth and Carmella, who are two oh, of my no. two of my faves. I love Or Truth. I love Carmella. Yeah. They're both great, and they both can dance really yeah. well. Both professionally mm-hmm. as well. You know, she's a former uh, cheerleader. <laughs> They'd send them out in the middle of shows, being like, "It's time for a dance break," and everyone would just go on their phones. Yeah. Maybe it speaks to a different era in, you know, human history where we would have undivided attention, just want to take pictures and shout at the thing you've seen. And you can't do that now because everyone, if everyone was dancing, you'd want to film people dancing. But it is pure wrestling reaction. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder as well if part of its success is down to the fact that the choreography is very simple. Yeah. Outside of the worm, obviously, which yeah. is really hard to do. But it's stuff that, like, most people could reenact themselves so it's kind of like inviting the crowd to join in i mean as a silly billy white boy uh when you show me that bit in malcolm x's book where it's like here's scientifically why you kevin can never dance <laughs> and i'm like yeah, yeah fair enough like i'm still gonna dance at the wedding like you know i'll give it i'll give it a go malcolm like either way but yeah it's simple it is imitatable it's simple it can be readily imitated yeah. you don't need to unless you want to retry your 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 go with the worm but like even rikishi stuff he'd be doing like the robot and stuff like mm. that and, you know that's absolutely like what makes it successful 
Brian Christopher choreographed all their dance numbers. Wow. That's wild to me. Because like <laughs> I always was like, he's the worst one. He can't he's the one who can't dance. Oh, that's a separate skill. He just points at things <laughs> in various ways. But maybe that is part of it, because he's doing it for a wrestling audience. You mm. know, he knows like I'm not doing something to show off how great I am at dancing. I'm That's doing it. something think, that you can all do along with me. I think the downside a lot of times with getting actual professional dancers into wrestling dancing gimmicks is that they overthink things and they're trying yes. to show off to other dancers. And it's like, no, 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 you need to be showing off to the kids like you want to get the kids involved or the old people involved well that's what they do on house shows they bring kids into the ring and they'd be like look you'd literally you'd see clips of brian christopher be like it's two steps to the left two steps to the right that's literally all you gotta do yeah. and then the music will play and all of a sudden all these people in the audience are like i'm dancing ah! <laughs> i'm as good as grandmaster sexy it's really really brilliant and like it amps up in terms of reaction like within three to four weeks we watched like the three or four weeks leading up to the rumble and like the worm goes from something that gets like mild booze to then being something that people are like, hey, hey, to like by the time we get arranged to like late January, early February, people are like, that worm, ah. The big secret was apparently one night Jerry just went W-O-R-M and Scotty was like, do that every single time. Every single time do that. And all of a sudden he would add up every week he'd add a new flourish like he put one hand out and then the other hand out then he'd look the camera would zoom in on his face and he'd go ah! and then he'd run on the spot and then he'd do the w-o-r-m my god almighty like we'd all do the first bit and then there'd be like one kid who do the actual worm yeah but like but that's it it's accessible like the the basic bit is accessible to everyone yes but then it gives the opportunity if someone can do show off. the flashy worm we thought he invented the worm we were convinced that's Scotty's thing, like, yeah. you know. I'm sure somewhere, somewhere thought that you know, he had, like, a, a trademark on it or something oh, like that. Wow, yeah. But case in point of how over these guys were getting, in a period where that really meant something and could give you opportunities very quickly, we're going to go now for our next match from the 7th of February on Monday Night Raw. What many, myself included, would say is the most perfect example of what specifically... 2000 wwf was like this is a match that was set up as cactus jack and the rock possibly taking on all of dx and the radicals on their own in a five on two handicap match but who answers the challenge at the 11th hour but everyone's favorite dancing trio too cool and rikishi this match is insane levels of crowd reaction that i almost feel embarrassed to show anyone because i feel most wrestling pales in comparison just in terms of the energy in that building at that time yeah the great thing about this is that we've not just got stars in the ring we've got stars like we've got eddie guerrero at ringside i didn't even notice him yeah he's there in his sling at ringside my god yeah, my main takeaway from this was that we had Stephanie McMahon on commentary. When I was laying out all the big stars that we've got here, when I mentioned that Stephanie was there as well, Joe was like, okay, now you have my yeah. attention. She is wonderfully shit. She's got her father's talents yeah, she's on like commentary. Three months in, I think, to being a heel on yeah. TV. She's not quite, I'm backstage getting a new hat, Stephanie. No. Yet. She's not that level of confidence and execution. One of the first things she <laughs> says when Too Cool and Rikishi actually finally come out, she says, they've got no right to be here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. They simply have no right to be here. She says, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> I just love, she's so sulky. It's so, but like, 
I remember as a kid, like, hating Stephanie so much, and I'd be like, yeah, you should be obsessed, you should be, they they do have a right to be here, because it's a ten-man tag that makes it ten men. I was amazed that they let Too Cool be the surprise. Like, you have Cactus Jack and The Rock come out, two yeah. of the top guys in all of wrestling at that point. But it's Too Cool and Rikishi. They're the like, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> How is The Rock not the surprise? I know. That's wild to me, and baby. It's like that moment of, like, the crowd realizing a it's someone we want to see b they're getting a shot in the big main event and c that bastard triple h and his evil wife stephanie are going to be upset oh my god it's a fever dream this like everyone is just like screaming pretty much for 10 minutes straight in this one when scotty does the worm jerry lawler tries to protect stephanie from it he's like like, don't look look away don't watch no i saw a bit of it she literally says what on earth is that A cool thing that Grandmaster Sexay does when he comes in. I love it. Like, when the match is serious and there's a big move coming, he'll put the goggles on, baby. Mm. And I don't think anyone got into a swimming pool in my school or, or any time in my teen years without dusting them off like Grandmaster. Very slowly putting them on, doing the dance, shaking your head to the left and to the right golden stuff we here. got a fair few tweets from people being yeah <laughs> saying the exact same thing did you also have the difficulty like i did in assigning that maneuver to yourself as a cool dancing dropkick in smackdown and then it takes like three and a half minutes for you to do the move and everyone beats you up yes we did actually get a tweet or so about that thank uh, you for your service their finisher being interrupted all the time because <laughs> the long dance moves Triple H comes in and beats up Grandmaster Sexay and the entire arena call him an asshole in unison. How dare you beat up this Grandmaster of what it is to be Sexay. It was in this match that I noticed just how how good Scotty is in a very easy to miss way. There's a moment where The Rock tags in and just before he tags in, Scotty, you don't you can't really even see it because it's not on the camera. He's you just, just off. His, you yeah. can see his arms and the kind of off half off screen, and he's clapping. He is riling the crowd up. He has the crowd in like the yep. palm of his hand. He actually when, instigates a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, when he knows the Rock is about to tag in, he's getting the crowd hot for the Rock. It's so impressive because it's like no, you you think it's the Rock. You don't need to do anything. But like no, actually, the fans clapping in unison. That's such a huge part of a wrestling yeah. show, and I think. You probably didn't realise that until you went to see live wrestling, you were telling me, recently. It was when yeah. I saw... Well, it wasn't even recently now. It was like six years ago. But when we saw The Revival, yeah. at, I think it was an NXT show yeah, we saw. Back in the day, yeah. yeah. And just seeing how they riled up the crowd in a way that was barely even part of the match. But yeah, it was such an important part of getting the crowd hot and feeling like they're involved. In tag wrestling, it is so important. Because you just think, oh, people are going to like do the cheers when they're meant to. I'm like, well, actually... It's like like having a soundtrack. You have to pace it well or else the rhythm is off. Because wrestling fans, you know, you can zone out very easily. And you might, might, like, there's nothing worse than you you see a match and someone hits the hot tag and the fans are like, oh, wait, that, oh, I see. But yeah, Scotty, whether he is causing the clap or the thing is once the clap starts, he does a big bounce up and down on the ropes. Really, really good. And I think it's part of the reason why their matches, even when they're on the shorter side, always have that because they're not like dancing throughout the matches. No. They're still wrestling, you yeah. know. The dance comes at the end, but, but they get like, that vibe from that crowd work. Even though they are the surprise in this match, most of the focus isn't really on them. It's yes. on the top stars. And it was just seeing that and like out of the corner of my eye that then I 
paid really close attention to what Scotty was doing in the other matches we watched. And it's something that he kept going throughout his entire career is like that ability to completely manipulate the crowd to get them in that right mindset. And I think another part of it is like almost like crowds need to let off steam. If you don't have an output for crowds to make some noise at a wrestling show, they're going to get a bit riled up and bored and they're going to start throwing basketballs around or chanting random shite. We've been to a few indie shows in Manchester where they went too far the other way and every match they're like, come on, everyone, clap, clap. And like, then by, you know, halfway through the show, like my hands are sore. Like, you know, you you can't do it every single go round, but this is like kind of a special breed of a, of a of a main event in wrestling because every single tag is a hot one everyone is either an extremely capable wrestler or is extremely over with the audience and even though grandmaster and scotty are probably you know they're swimming in the wake of the bigger stars on both sides of the ring they maximize that and they are they get the reactions equivalent like i can't believe i'm saying that that scotty too hottie and grandmaster sexy got reactions equivalent to the rock and cactus jack mm-hmm. in the year 2000 yeah. when we're like at the peak of those, you know, those hot crowds. Yeah. It's really something else. But Grandmaster Sexay is unfortunately the man who has to do the honours. And behind the referee's back, there is chicanery. And he ends up getting the pedigree and the diving headbutt from Chris Benoit. And DX pick up the win. But it's damn sure not over, JR reminds us. As after this match, as if there's not enough star power, Paul Bearer and Kane return. Mm-hmm. And the crowd finds a whole new level. I think everyone in that audience was going home with a sore throat the next yeah, day. Yeah, definitely. Oh my God. All we need at the end of this one was a dance. <laughs> <laughs> There's one bit that we've actually forgotten to, to talk about, which was, I can't remember who it was, but it was two people on the heel team. I think it was Triple H and someone else blew their noses. Oh, it Perry, yeah. Perry Saturn did go, oh God. And Stephanie on commentary says, I thought it was cute. <laughs> And the other favorite moment from this match was when Stephanie, who's hyping up that Cactus Jack will face Triple H in a retirement stipulation Hell in a Cell match in a few weeks' time, she kept saying, like, he's going to be retired at No Way Out. And you thought she was saying he was going to be tired. I mean... <laughs> he's going to have to wrestle so much tonight. He's going to be sleepy. He's so sleepy. Also, when the lights went out, and just before Caden and Paul Bearer came back, she said... Jill, what did you do? <laughs> She's like not good at commentary because she talks over a lot of people yeah. when she shouldn't. And, and JR's then... caught up in that moment as well. So he yeah. talks over everyone. And then well. there's a lot of moments as well where there's too much silence that she's kind of thinking about what she needs to say. Like it, you always forget how hard commentary is to do because people who do it well make it look so easy. Yeah. But it's very clear when you see her doing it, how difficult it is. But there are just so many golden lines from her in this. That's I really so loved. Yeah, I figured you get a big kick out of that. And I think it's really interesting. I checked, you know, from interviews in the years gone by and all that, both Scotty and Brian Christopher said this match easily was the favourite of their career. Mm. Just because I think even if you're the two very different types of wrestlers that those guys were with different mentalities, they were after the same thing. In wrestling, you want reactions that match, I think, was pretty much eight, nine minutes of non-stop reactions. And when we did the recent Tommy Dreamer, when we did the Tommy Dreamer episode and you saw that bit with Jerry Lawler invading ECW, and I'm like, I think you finally understand this is that feeling of what ECW was like at yeah. its peak. The chaos, the insanity of it all, the relentlessness of it. 
this for me, like this is why I was a wrestling fan in the year 2000s. Because in my mind, every night was like this. Even though when you go back and you watch it, it, it absolutely wasn't. Yeah. But you felt like any night could become like this when they're hyping up a main event. But how did it translate to you? Like, how did you get on? Because you're, you're kind of just like a tourist here. You popped into the year 2000 for an unseemingly extremely loud audience for one night only <laughs> i'll be honest i thought this match was a fucking mess <laughs> they're all like they run into the ring all 10 people like three yeah. times in the match i think and there's like not much wrestling in this match yeah. it's mainly just hot tags and punches <laughs> but what punches my yeah. god i gave it two and a half stars it was really? definitely fun <laughs> but i have no interest in watching it again that's very intriguing but i think like yeah, I think as an actual match, it's not much. But I think as like, hey, look how over everyone was. Look at the yeah. death. Because Too Cool were never the top team, even when they were tag champions. They were like, you know, Edge and Christian, Hardy Boys, DX, mm. you know, like New Age Outlaws, for instance. You had so many bigger, more established names, but they got that reaction. And not because, you know, you could have, you could have slot anyone in there. People fucking loved that gimmick. They were so on board with it. So, of course, like everything that gets over in wrestling, it ends up kind of spilling over to other acts. And everyone gets in on the fun. And everyone wants to dance with Too Cool. Mm. There were a lot of suggestions for some of the uh, preferred or favorite moments of Too Cool dancing with initially uh, resentful and just suspicious tag team slash dance partners. I had to show Joe the Dudley Boys dancing with Too Cool because it makes Bubba Ray go from being in a euphoric trance and wanting to put women through tables to being a funky white guy who likes to do his own little break dancing. I always forget he can dance. He can. He was the dancing Dudley. That was his original gimmick. I fucking love a big guy dancing. It's so cool. I'll tell you what, Joe. I'm sure if you ever met Bubba Ray Dudley, he'd be delighted to find out that you loved his dancing. I hope I never meet him. <laughs> Don't like him. <laughs> uh, Cactus Jack dancing with Too Cool is also hilarious because it's just, I don't know, parts of wrestling that feel like they should never interact. I liked when they danced with the Hardys and Lita. Boy, oh boy, that was fantastic. Because like, the best bit is just seeing how each wrestler approaches the dance. Like if they do it or if they do their own thing. And Jeff Hardy's just doing his normal like pointing fingers, hands. For, for those who don't know, Jeff's doing his stuff. He's doing stuff yeah. what he's doing there. Yeah, Lita is really into it. Matt kind of disappears into the background somewhat. <laughs> I think when Chris Jericho and China danced with them, it was hilarious seeing that neither Chris Jericho nor China had anything to bring to the table no. in terms of a dance number. I want to know your dream scenario pick wrestlers from the time you know blue sky thinking who would you like to have done a dancing segment with too cool and rikishi william regal <laughs> and tajiri yeah yes yes perfect i mean i'm gutted that didn't happen vince mcmahon as well i would have loved to have seen <laughs> vince and shane both together yeah. dance along with them i think that would have been absolutely fantastic love to see the rock do it as well just because i don't know can the rock dance if he could he would have by now right because the rock can sing the rock can play guitar anything the rock can sorry he can play guitar kinda he, Willie Nelson gave him a guitar he can wow. play several chords but anything the rock can do he'll always show you that he can do it right, he, he's, yeah. a, he's a very much a shower and a teller so probably not then I just I, about like no more so than the rock you know trying to do a wrestling match that maybe is potentially beyond his skill set yeah. or, or physical shape the rock being made to dance when he can't 
That would be really funny. That would be very funny. <laughs> Maybe, you know what, actually, real Blue Sky thinking, Shane McMahon, specifically WrestleMania 39 Shane McMahon, he starts mm-hmm. dancing, Shane still got it! <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to do the worm! <laughs> <laughs> so, this thing gets over crazy big, they get themselves a match at WrestleMania, they've got cool new matching gear, that kind of white jacket with all the jazzy black writing all over it. I was saying to Joe, because uh, Joe was like, did you like Too Cool, like kind of how they looked and all that? And I was like, well, when I got No Mercy on the N64 Christmas in 2001, the first thing I did was go up into my room and make my custom character. And at the end, I realized I had just made Grandmaster Sexay with a hockey mask. <laughs> like he had the hat, he had the jacket, he had the gloves, he had the pants, he had the entrance sunglasses that went over the hockey mask. Wow. And yeah, even 13-year-old Kevin was too ashamed to keep him and immediately delete him before his Aww. big brother saw and uh, was, was going to mock him relentlessly for it. <laughs> so yeah, we're at a peak too cool here, which takes us on to our next match from Judgment Day in 2000. Edge, Christian, and Kurt Angle, a.k.a. Team Eck, taking on Too Cool and Rikishi. And it stands to good reason now, Joe. We've done an episode on Edge. Mm. We've done an episode on Kurt Angle. Yeah. But in recent years, and in recent months particularly, over on our Patreon page, on our AEW reviews, the old patriarch Christian Cage has Mm. become one of your fast faves. Oh, I love him. I think an episode on him, hey? Yes, but... I feel he's still so much in his prime. Damn it, he's still got it. He's still got it. That's too. It's too much of a hot run to do yeah, an episode in the middle of. I, I want to see... I don't want to deny myself the opportunity to talk about what he does next. Yes. Because you know it's going to be good. Does this Christian that you see here, does he jam with the, the Christian that you're more familiar with? More yeah. modern 23, 24 yeah, Christian? Yeah. I've always been familiar with this era of Christian, yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. He's so funny. They're, they're all funny, yeah. I love it. Kurt Angle refers to his tag team partners as, in inverted commas, all that. Okay. Because all the teenage girls love Edge and Christian, right. and by association now, Kurt Angle. So at this point, because I thought at this point, Edge and Christian were kind of like wacky heels. They are. And the girls still loved them. Yes. And that was a great way, if you were a girl, to wind up a boy in the year 2000, which is saying how much you love Edge and Christian. You, as a boy, you'd be like, you know, you're the pretty boy, blonde hair. And like, yeah, we know. But they've got so many teeth and they're so handsome. Yeah, I know. But they're really annoying and funny. Yeah, I know. No. <laughs> and they were like, it's true what they say. Girls only love bad boys. <laughs> They only love it when you do five-second poses and mock the people of Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) Greetings to all our fans in Louisville, Kentucky. (laughs) Did you actually know girls, though, at the time? Especially girls who liked Edge and Christian. I knew some girls. Really? And they liked Edge and Christian? They liked Edge and Christian, yes. And that was, uh, like, I was like, how can you not like like the Dudley boys instead? Oh, come on. They have glasses. Smelly boy club. But they have glasses and scars like me, Kevin, (laughs) who also has glasses and scars. Why don't girls like me, Kevin? I don't understand. Is it because I want to put them all through tables? Is it the euphoric (laughs) trance I go into? Not like that nice Edge and Christian always phoning up their grandma. (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, I'm interested to know, Teen Joe, would she have liked this Edge and Christian dynamic here, what they were presenting? But I don't know, like... I, I I always find it very difficult to imagine what Teen Joe would have liked in wrestling. Because of irony, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Damn it's, irony. I think I would have loved all of them, but yeah. I don't know. So Edge and Christian Kurt Angle decide to insult the local fans here by dressing up as a jug band mm. to mock the bluegrass state here in Kentucky. I had to look up what a jug band was. I mean, is it just is it any band that has a jug in it? 
It's a band that has a jug in it and uses homemade instruments. Okay. And then I realised that my mum's boyfriend was in a jug band. Really? Yeah, he played the washboard. Wow, that's interesting. Now, that's because he also makes good pickles. So I'm wondering if that's mm. like, you have a good, good jar for your pickles. Yeah. Good jug in there. I do think it's like similar it. skills. Pickling and j- jugging. It's like DIYing. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the washboard, Joe, i got to say. It's like, pretty good. Have you ever played one? I've never played. Is it oh, easy? Oh, yeah, it's easy. He's still got it. Next time we go to Cambridge, get, get a go on the washboard. <laughs> So Too Cool come out, a perfect unit now. All the kind of bits that are being worked out, I think are extremely fine-tuned at this point. Huge reaction for them. There's something about the two of them dancing either side, going crazy ham over the top with all their moves. Like, how they're not gassed and exhausted by the time they get to the ring is, is beyond me. Oh, they're both in incredible shape. And then you got slow, stoic Rikishi, just yeah. flicking his nose, walking really, really slowly and so ominously cool. to the ring. Absolutely fantastic. There is immediate butt stuff in this match, by which I mean they have two kill doing little versions of Rikishi's big ass attacks. Mm. The idea being you want to build up to the big ass in the match, I'm thinking, obviously. At one point, Brian Christopher's trousers fall down. (laughs) He starts doing his dance. And they just fall. And they fall. And he's like, he looks, he realizes, and he keeps dancing. And that's, I'm not going to lie, where a lot of our attention was drawn in this match. Brian Christopher's trousers falling down. I don't know if he's shooting or working. I know. Your theory came closest, I think. Yeah, I think it happened by mistake. Like, it wasn't planned. But I think he could tell... You know, you can kind of feel when your trousers are about to fall down. I think he could feel that was happening. And instead of pulling them back up and that would look kind of shit and amateurish, he was like, oh no, this is gold. This will be funny. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I often I often will do that. You yeah, know. you do. If if, if I feel like my trousers are going to fall down and Joe's nearby... The I... number of times I look around <laughs> and there you are with your trousers down by your ankles. Like, uh... You know what's going to be great? When I'm old. Yeah, great. <laughs> and you look over and I'm like, my trousers have fallen <laughs> And I won't know if it's because you're senile or just being silly. <laughs> it's great because usually it happens when you, you, you've lost a bit of weight so you feel good about yourself. Yeah. Hey, check this out. Like... <laughs> It'll be, become such a habit for you that when you do eventually get like in your 90s and you're like senile and stuff, you'll be doing it in the old people's home and they'll be like, oh, it's so sad his trousers keep falling down, not realising that you're doing it to be fun. Yeah, I'll let everyone know I'm going to do it to be fun because I think that the Grandmaster Sex Ace signature dance yeah. you know, that I love to do so much as a teen, that will hasten the downfall of any pair of britches. Yeah, for sure. There is some real cool stuff going on in this match. Firstly, Scotty Too Hardy butter smooth this guy is in the ring everything he does is so fucking crisp it's so beautiful we did actually watch earlier on i think brian had gotten injured again between those two matches that we just covered and during that period scotty did his own singles run and we watched uh, him and dean malenko light heavyweight Mm. match scotty is like i've been so shocked to find out like oh he's actually a very good wrestler as well as dancing yeah i mean they both are yeah that's it i am I am obsessed with Brian Christopher's drop kicks. Oh, they're good. They're so good. Because it looks like he makes full fucking contact. Makes full contact, but also it's the direction of... I hate so much when people do like drop kicks and they just look like they're just falling normally, like yes. feet to the ground. And you take a bump at the same time. He kicks his legs up so high. He's like an inverted diagonal. His feet are higher than his head. And he almost always does it to the back of yeah. them as well. So it's not like someone who's standing there waiting for you to nah. do and fall and then you take a bump. It's like 
they get you you're hit in the back of the head yeah. with a flying karate kick off the top rope. It's really goddamn and cool. He's quite tall as well. Like he's taller than Jerry for sure. So <laughs> I'm always like extra impressed when someone who's tall can jump that high. Speaking of uh, tall, I want to talk about the tall hair of Scotty Too Hotty, mm. which many a boy on the playground threatens to get their hair to grow that way, and then we all sat around thinking, hey, how does that actually happen? Like, what what did his hair look like? Not tall. Was it like that all the time? And how did he get it to look that way? Well, Jerry on commentary says that it's moose. It's not moose. It's uh, not if it was moose, Joe, there would be some telltale signs, right? Moose, as far as I, my experience with moose, is it's not it's not hard holding enough. Right. It needs to be kind of thicker. Because he's working I... with this tall hair. And mm. it's not as if, like, there's a lot of wrestlers who do their hair up in a jazzy way. And then the match goes on. And then all of a sudden it starts coming down. Yeah. But like, it's not like Seamus when he had that mohawk. You could see you could probably fucking bounce pennies off it. It was yeah, so yeah. hardened with a thick layer of mm. like gel and fucking, I don't know. It's like he had it vac packed or something before he starts the match. Well, back in the 80s, punks, when they had spiky hair and mohawks and stuff, they would mix glue into hair gel. Fucking hell. And then like they'd hair dry it upright so it but would dry that way. Scotty's hair doesn't look hard or, excuse the gross term, crispy. Right. <laughs> That's the thing, because I thought it was going to be hair gel, because that's how all the boys in my school would do it. But apparently he used hairspray. I looked ah. it up. But yeah, I, I, I didn't think the fact that it didn't look wet didn't make me think it wasn't hair gel, because you can get some like non-wet look hair gels. That's but... some heavy duty hairspray, though, because he, like, he's taking bumps on his head. Yeah. And well, the hair is fine. <laughs> back in the day, hairspray, because spiky hair was much more on trend, hairsprays were more hard holding. It was actually yeah. harder back in when I was a teenager to find light hairspray than heavy hairspray. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, strong hairspray can do quite impressive things. Someone in wrestling has got to bring back the tall hair. Hair that comes out of a hat. Like, that for me, like, visually, someone would just see that and be like, that's fucking awesome. I like, didn't <laughs> realise until we started doing this episode that it was his hair. I thought it was a hat. Because yeah, they do both wear hats that have built-in well, hair with them. And also, them. I mean, I'm guessing it's because of them, but there were loads of hats like that which had fake... Literally, the lidless. bucket hat, lidless, with fake hair that's blonde and spiky. Oh, that's a Scotty thing, I would think. Right? I mean, but I couldn't like, think of anyone else. But I saw people wear them all the time when I was a teenager. Interesting. There's some really cool little bits in here, because this is probably the longer of, uh, of the matches that we've covered, but there's little remnants of them doing that kind of tag style where it's like, I gotta look out for my partner, make sure I'm there for him. They do stuff where, like, Edge will throw Scotty into a corner, but then Grandmaster will, like, jump into that corner and kind of cradle his body so that when he takes the corner, it, the blow has been cushioned, basically. Mm. And then Edge and Christian try and do the same thing, but, like, Christian just, like, runs headfirst and hits Edge by mistake. So there's lots of this kind of, like, Grandmaster and Scotty are, like, much more in sync in kayfabe than the cafe brothers edge and christian yeah. who keep running into each other and clocking heads and stuff like that which i thought was extremely extremely funny when the worm gets teased the crowd all stand up in unison yeah they want the best view for the worm like i can think of really over moves people's elbow the rko the 3d that the least did you know mr Sako, whatever but like when you think you're going to see a move to stand up mm. i can't think of many dare i say any moves where like i think i'm going to see the man 
do what is ultimately a shitty chop on the throat and people stand up they get out of their seats yeah. and then he doesn't do it and they all step back down <laughs> we'll get him later though we'll get him later it's absolutely fine Scotty gets worked over the crowd get hotter and hotter Rikishi gets the hot tag and my god it's always fun to see the big man in the prime of his career because he clears house and oh my god everyone goes flying Kurt Angle gets the stink face which when he gets it he goes no <laughs> Rikishi gets a double DDT and immediately stands up and no sells it and I'm thinking like this is kind of modern isn't it it's feeling kind of mm. almost uh, Young Bucks-esque with the no selling of random moves and the constant furious you know fast pace and all that jazz that's uh, because it's Sedge and Christian doing a DDT and not Jake Roberts oh so that's, that's what why. it is yeah it depends on who does it Edge is going to try and attempt to do the worm which is like throughout the match Edge and Christian try and like mimic Two Cool's dances and you have to see Christian trying to do Grandmaster Sexay's dance for it to be believed because a lot of work went in to make him seem as stiff and borderline arthritic and incapable of doing it because Grandmaster's moves are so basic and Christian's like doing them so badly the crowd doesn't even register that's what he's doing but when Edge teases he's going to do the worm that's sacrilege here in Kentucky folks people are very upset (laughs) he fortunately gets the worm instead which leads JR to say Edge is wormless (laughs) Christian uses the bell but as the pin is being made Grandmaster Sexay hits the hip hop drop his diving leg drop too cool win the match but as there is no bell to ring we're all left with a vague sense of like a sneeze that hasn't Mm, quite come a big dance love the whole thing this was three very over bad guys against three very over good guys. Like, this is probably one of the purest things you're going to see in the Edge era, other than the man's pants falling down at one point. <laughs> this is a feel-good match for me, and dare I say, a very guilty pleasure. I always go back to this one. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed this one. I wasn't sure what score to give it, really. Because you're expecting with Kurt and Edge and Christian there, and Rikishi, I guess, mm. you're probably expecting more of a, you know, actual wrestling match more of a knockout drag out brawl this was a little bit more on the kind of the the fun side of things it's, they opened the show with this yeah. it felt very much kind of like a nice you know sugary happy-go-lucky match you know yeah i i liked that it was fun yeah and silly you need that on a show you do yeah um but yeah i just didn't know what i'm, I'm still torn between my my rating because I'm, I'm not sure if it's three and a half or four stars that i want to give it what did you not like about it was there something that was maybe holding you back from it? I don't know. I think maybe the pacing slightly. Yeah. The fact that it was quite like spot heavy. Yes. And it didn't kind of ramp up. Yeah, it was kind of kind of very quick quick action, I guess, compared to maybe what you'd be used to seeing with a multi-mad match with, yeah. with these type of, you know, the, the guys who they were facing against. But it was really fun. And just again, proven how insanely over they all yeah. were. Oh my God, people wanted to boo those bad guys and they wanted to cheer those good guys. And during an era that was, you know, opened up with Vince McMahon saying, you're all tired of good guys and bad guys. Well, three years later, it turns out we really love good guys and bad guys. <laughs> it turns out it's kind of important in wrestling to have good yeah. guys and bad guys. Surely you don't want to cheer or boo. That's quite <laughs> passe, as no, they say. we sit here thoughtfully looking at the match. Quite frankly, the dancing afterwards was extemporaneous at best. <laughs> so we go with three and a half, we go with four. The people gotta know, Joe. Fuck it, I'll go with four. Fuck yeah. Let's be generous. 
So after this, quite shortly, they actually got, for their one and only time, a run with the Tag Team Championships. That was on the 29th of May in the same year. They took on Edge and Christian in a match that included Joe C from Kid Rock fame, who was, uh, the whole night was made fun of from Edge and Christian for being short, and they referred to him as Mini-Me. He had uh, like an autoimmune disorder, mm. so he couldn't grow past like three foot nine or whatever it was. He died when he was 26. It was really sad, but he was like, I remember that was a huge, like, kind of, whoa, Joe C. He's the cool little rapper who's with with Kid Rock, and The Undertaker's got Kid Rock American Badass theme. So it was very much like Joe C helping Too Cool win the tag belts. It was this, like, big, oh, my God, like, you know, a cool guy from music likes wrestling, and right. he helps the cool wrestlers beat up the bad guys. I mean, it was only for a couple of weeks, I think, they had the tag belts. But there was a glorious period that summer where Rikishi was the Intercontinental Champion and Too Cool were the Tag Team Champions. That's nice. And I think it is easy to probably overstate the importance of this to the overall period of time. Because I think it was more of a reflection of the time. They were over characters, the audience was hot, so they could do things like this and have these great little moments with characters who were maybe further down the card. I can't think of like an equivalence, really in more modern times where someone kind of far down the card wins like maybe if like the alpha academy won the tag belts and like tozawa won a belt or something like that or maxine won like a women's title kind of equivalent but they're not as over as these guys were but like people have those memories and it was a very you know fun albeit short time and it kind of all fell apart a little bit towards the end of the 2000s because Scotty needed neck surgery. Oh. He was written off TV as having, you know, his uh, ankle broken by Kurt. But he had a very serious, you know, neck fusion surgery. That's like what Austin and Edge had to have. Was it, like, caused by any particular match or move or Just anything? wear and tear. Just wear and tear, yeah. Because at that point, so. he had been, you know, wrestling ages. 12, 13 years wrestling very regularly, yeah. you know. And God, that worm was a godsend, I think, you know, mm. because it's an easier thing to do than a lot of the other... Uh, the moves that wrestlers were expected to do. You know, Too Cool were never in TLC matches or hardcore matches or table matches or things like that. They were still very much the kind of the feel good. And as a result of that, like, you know, we talked about in the episode when Rikishi turned heel and ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, this feels like real excess baggage then. This this team, it's like, what do you do with them? Mm -hmm. I mean, what would you do with Too Cool when Rikishi has run over Stone Cold Steve Austin? That's it, because I don't think it really works without Rikishi. No, it doesn't. Sadly. It is the special sauce that made the whole thing work. It's weird when a tag team doesn't really work without a third singles wrestler. (laughs) You know, they they weren't kind of in sync without it. And they, I remember being so fucking depressed when I watched it as a kid. It was like, Rikishi ran over Stone Cold and he got away with it for a while because Grandmaster Sexay lied to the commissioner and told them, oh yeah, no, Rikishi couldn't have done it because we were all chilling together backstage. And then Mick Foley figured out Rikishi hadn't debuted yet at that point. So they couldn't have been chilling backstage. So they were like, oh, okay. Too cool lied for the attempted homicide of Stone Cold Steve Austin mm. to save their friends. And then they did a thing where they're like, come on, Rikishi, it's not cool to run over Stone Cold. We should all dance and be together. That wasn't doing the right thing. (laughs) Then Rikishi squashed them in a two-on-one match, just, Mm. you know, destroyed them or whatever. And it's like, that's just really sad as a kid. And, you know, they brought them back here and there. They did like a tag team with Grandmaster Sexay and Steve Blackman trying to again capture the kind of 
you know the the, the non-willing dance partner yeah. with the guy didn't really work uh, similarly scotty chuhati had a tie team with albert you know big albert big yeah. ball dudes Similarly, like, oh, the, the hip-hop hippo doesn't want to dance, and now he starts dancing. But it was just trying to do something that they'd done before. Yeah. Rikishi and Scotty even had, like, a decent little run in, like, 2003 or four as tag team champions on SmackDown without Brian Christopher. And Why without Brian? Because Brian in 2001 got fired. Oh. For bringing drugs across the U.S.-Canadian border. He brought meth and cocaine. Oh. And this is the thing, behind a lot of the good times that you were enjoying on screen, there was some stuff happening behind the scenes. And Brian Christopher developed a pretty bad drug problem in wrestling. He never touched drugs. Apparently, according to people around him, he never touched drugs until he went to WWF. Mm. I can never really buy stories like that, because there's a lot of people who want to point at the big company and say, this is when my problem started. Mm. I've seen some clips of him from Memphis, and I would say it's not an exaggeration to infer he was maybe doing stuff then. But, like, Jerry Lawler's never even tasted alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, his son Brian, you know, was the complete opposite. Some would say, oh, it was a rebellion against his dad. I don't think addiction comes necessarily from so simple a place as... I'll show you, Dad, I'm going to become an alcoholic and a drug addict or yeah, anything like that. Plus, his brother, Kevin, Jerry's other son, yeah. is also, um, not straight edge, but teetotal, he, teetotal, yeah. yeah. And they're only like a year or so apart in mm-hmm. age. Yeah. He, he actually was involved in wrestling a little bit over the years, was uh, yeah, Kevin Lawler. Yeah, I looked him up. He, he was a referee for a while and a manager. Yeah, he actually managed the Gilberts in ECW briefly. But like, yeah, I think... It's, it's a tale we've told time and time again, I think, on this show where it's like, you know, there are vices there on the road. It is a very difficult travel schedule. People find ways to entertain themselves. I think it says a lot that Scotty never rode with him. He never drove with him. He never stayed in a hotel with him. They never traveled together. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because Scotty liked to go to theme parks and hang out with the nerdy guys who didn't do that stuff. Mm. And Brian Christopher, I mean, he claims that a tag team that will remain nameless forced him to do cocaine. Yeah, I heard that. It's like, well, it's not, it's not fucking Oz. Like, you know, is it like, you know, do this, do these drugs, or I'm going to beat you up or whatever. That sounds very much like something you'd tell your dad yeah. to get out of trouble. <laughs> and he had more chances than the average wrestler would get. And if there is a Nepo baby element to Brian Christopher, it's that he got in trouble quite a few times. And because of who his father was, and his father's friend and broadcast partner, Jim Ross, was the head of talent relations. He got off a lot of stuff that he shouldn't have gotten off. Right. You smuggling drugs across the Canadian border into America or vice versa. you like, he got, he didn't get any jail time. He didn't even lose his visa. Wow. He only got, he had to make a donation to like a teen anti-drug program in Canada or something like that. Right. Like, all right, someone's pulled some levers there for you, I think. Yeah. Some favors were called in. The last thing JR did before he retired as head of talent relations was hire back Brian Christopher as like a favor. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, Jerry, I'll give your son one last chance. And the first thing Johnny Ace did when he became head of talent relations is fire Brian Christopher. Right. Because he thought he was, you know, a screw up. And it's kind of sad, like, because, you know, their careers went in very different directions then at that point. Scotty hung on to like 2007 generally speaking, as a jobber or whatever it is. Mm. Brian kind of went all over the world, and this is kind of, you know, the post-WCW, ECW, there wasn't other viable companies to go to. He had a bit of time in TNA when it was very first starting off. He went to a lot of indies and all that. But apparently a big issue was that he wanted to be that big, 
main event world traveling star mm. and i don't think that goes over so well when you're the one guy on the show who's been on telly and you kind of get a bit of an ego about that well and i think especially if you've got drug problems yeah because that's going to always lend itself to an element of unreliability yeah. people don't necessarily believe that they can trust you and working with them because mm. wrestling is so physical and it is so much about trust it kind of does make sense if if you know someone you're up against is always fucking stoned and you know that they're they have your life and career in their hands mm. yeah it's difficult he had like a really bad reputation like and i remember he was one of the wrestlers and you know I am in, in elements ashamed to say this because it's like, it's really fucking bleak and all that. But like, he was one of those wrestlers I expected to, to die. Mm. You know, in that kind of 2000s period, we mentioned the last episode where a lot of people kind of were passing away quite quickly. And you'd hear stories where, you know, he got into loads of DUIs. There are a lot of mugshots of Brian Christopher out there. Yeah. And they all look kind of demented. And the thing was, is because he was known locally by the police so much at that point, and he was kind of a local figure doing local shows, he'd always smile in his mugshots because he knew it would get himself press. Mm. And I think if you're at that point in your life where you're thinking it's a good for business for you to get arrested and DUI'd so you can have a funny mugshot, he was really troubled. And I don't think he had much in the way of help. Like he had intervention staged for him, but I don't think it was something that... I think you have to be wanting to get clean and sober yeah. for those to you work. You have to hit rock bottom. He went to the WWE rehab a couple of times, but apparently he only did it because he thought he'd get his job back. Right. And that makes sense. That's you know, not going not gonna to really pan out for him. You were saying that Scotty was more friends with kind of like the nerdy guys. Yeah. Foley, we... Edge, Christian, that was his kind of circle. And yeah. we know that he obviously didn't hang out really with brian at all yeah what was brian's circle of friends then i don't really know i mean like i know that he was close with like people like you know the rock and stuff like that and you know like in bradshaw like some of the people who would have come through the memphis territory like jeff jarrett and stuff like that back in the day yeah but there's not many people from that period that 2000 period who are like oh yeah brian i used to ride with brian like we found a lot of people talking about him yeah everyone has nice things to say about him oh man my heart broke when we listened to it was like psycho sid and he was like hey i don't know anyone talking about him having problems because you know my only memory about him is like we go get jelly donuts and chocolate milk yeah. and we'd race our cars to the next town you know, that was kind of irresponsible but man we wanted those donuts and chocolate <laughs> milk i'm like dude and like the Rock, you know, has talked about, you know, being really close with Brian Christopher and the, you know, the two would, just, you know, they'd play like you know, Madden NFL on like the N64 and stuff yeah. like that. You know, they, he had people he was close to, but I think when you're in that partying lifestyle, the people you're close with aren't necessarily like your lifelong buddies. They're just people who you might be just partying and doing drugs with and all that mm. stuff. So his is a really sad story. Yeah, you it just know? seems like he didn't really have anyone other than Jerry in his corner. And even Jerry, he was kind of distanced from a little bit. Yeah, I think like a lot of people sent us in that segment where it was like the bill for WrestleMania 27, like 2010, where it was like Michael Cole feuding with Jerry Lawler. Mm. And like to get at Jerry Lawler, Michael Cole, who was playing the heel, brought back Brian Christopher. Yeah. And like the idea of the segment was like, look at him, look at your wreck of a son. Mm. And like he's going to talk about how he's ashamed of you and never wanted to be your son and stuff like that. I think that that for him was a way to get notoriety and heat. But I think you're going to get fucked up with your relationship by doing that. Yeah. And also just like you're working for the WWE and that is not the way to get ahead in that company is by coming in fucked up all the time. Yeah. Like no one, no one looks good when their hair is 
died that level of blonde but like he came out and he was dancing like trying to do all of his old stuff and he was like breathless and yeah. it's just kind of like the best thing you could say about that segment is that it's awkward mm. you know and Jerry looks really kind of mortified which I guess is like yeah are we shooting or working mm. you're mortified about your son and he's like he literally says like on TV it's like you're a fucking screw up yeah I'm like yay like no one's cheering that like no. no one wants that to kind of be something that they remember they did have some reunions and stuff like that they reunited with you know Rikishi on Raw and they did a kind of an old school Raw angle where they took on 3MB it was really feel good you know nice bit of nostalgia I think Brian looked in a lot better condition there than he did with the appearance with with Jerry Mm. a few years prior. I remember at the time being like really shocked. I think it's in the Rikishi episode where I'm like, and Rikishi didn't like Too Cool. He didn't thank them in his Hall of Fame speech. And here I was unaware that Too Cool, you know, they were like, hey, we'll we'll work together and all Mm. that. We'll do business. But they weren't friends. They weren't close. That still is weird to me. I know, it's sad. I've not gotten my head around that. Yeah. But like... Someone would probably easily say to you, yeah, but like, you know, characters who are friends on a TV show, like they're not friends in real life. But Do that's you care? different because they Frodo don't... and Sam aren't really friends. But like the actors who play them are friends because they spent so much time together. Yeah. And like, it's a bonding experience. Like that's just, it would make more sense for me if they were enemies yes. than them not being friends at all. I think the kind of like, the nature of their relationship is is different from a lot of other tag teams who've kind of famously fallen out or whatever because I think both of them realised that what they had was lightning in a bottle. Mm. So I don't think there can be resentment either way because I don't think either of them thought that what they got was going to be as big as it was. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that it lasted as long as it did, albeit short, was also kind of, you know, they both were able to make careers out of it because whenever Brian Christopher went doing indies, he was doing Grandmaster Sexay and the Too Cool gimmick. Scott... Sky Too Hotty is still wrestling around the world doing the Too Cool gimmick. He just did a dark match for AEW and did the worm. He's 50 years old. Like, that's their bread and butter forever. So I don't think they can resent each other for that because they were able to get so much out of it. We did watch their match at the NXT arrival from like 2014. Do think some of those early NXT shows would be good for a pay-per-view classic Mm. at some point. Because that's like some of the first wrestling you actually watched. Yeah. But yeah, they were brought out as a kind of a, a mystery opponent for the Ascension, who were the tag champions at the time. It was a very kind of basic nostalgia match. What I was interested by in that when we watched it was that they mainly used it as a means to hype up the network. They were mm. like, hey, you can go and check out all of Two Cool's matches on the newfangled WWE Network. It's nine ninety nine a month. And they showed kind of clips and all that. Like, it was wild that they didn't do that more when the network first started, yeah. you know, using it. But, you know, it was... Um, it was nice to see them working together and they both looked really well. They did. They looked healthy. They yeah. looked happy, you know. And I think that's as much in terms of a final appearance in WWE. That's as much as what you can kind of hope for, I think. It yeah. was a kind of a nice little bow on the end of their, their careers together or anything like that. Mm. I think we have to talk about probably Brian's passing. Mm. Which was, it was 2018, I believe it was. Yeah, so since I've been watching since we've been doing the podcast i think it's one of those bits of news that kind of slipped through the kind of the cracks a little bit i don't think it was something that was dwelled on particularly long from people even though his passing was like one of the more tragic passings i think that we've 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 had Mm. in in wrestling history he had you know a string of issues leading up to it he had been in a lot of uh a lot of duis again he had been in a really bad fight as well this was Something I didn't know about, but Chase Stevens is a random name. We would have seen him on our recent TNA Unbreakable 05 pay-per-view classic on Patreon. One of the naturals, he's a former boxer. 
and the two of them got in a fight at a party apparently someone thought someone was taking a making a pass at their girlfriend or whatever right. they got in a fight but like you get in a fight with a drunk golden gloves boxer he beat the shit out of him and like mm. broke both of his orbital sockets he needed like a blood transfusion he broke his arm he was in hospital for like weeks afterwards wow. and it was kind of like it was really sad to see because like you know he was he lost his way obviously mm. and i don't think anyone was really there to help pick up the pieces because yeah. i don't think he even at that point would admit that he had a problem it kind of feels like everyone thought he was someone else's problem to deal with i don't think like jerry washed his hands of him or anything no like but that. more like he has to a, learn he's now. an adult he's like 46 years old yeah. or whatever and he's still going through this and i think jerry i feel weird giving jerry the benefit of the doubt because as i said i think he's an evil man but i i don't blame him for this because i do think at some point his involvement would have just made things worse yeah the kind of circumstance that led up to his passing, there is kind of a, a cloud of, of, of suspicion around it. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, there's enough here to kind of go full-blown conspiracy theory. Oh, God, yeah. You know, but that's not really what we're wanting to talk yeah. about here. So I think we'll just kind of maybe get into some of the details of it, you know, just because I think it's a story that most wrestling fans don't really know at this point in time, to be honest. Yeah, and it's difficult because there's a lawsuit going on as still well. ongoing still ongoing it's and, been going on for obviously a long time now and jerry had a stroke in february of last year so obviously his kind of involvement and i think most court cases move at glacial paces well, so you know covid apparently was the main oh, thing well, it really halted everything but basically the, jerry believes that there was something he his, he says his lawyer refers to it as not passing the smell test or too much smoke for there not to be some sort of fire with yeah in jail and that there's just too many details surrounding brian christopher's death for there not to be something kind of a bit suspicious yeah and i don't say that as in i believe he was murdered because just to be clear like that is something that jerry has said at points mm. that oh i believe brian christopher was murdered by and he's very vague as to who it would be whether it's an inmate or a guard or whatever but that's the problem though is that kind of um raw emotion and exaggeration yeah. are the enemies of the pursuit of of fact what actually happened i think yeah. a lot of people are pointing in one direction saying like he it was a conspiracy ergo he was murdered by like the sheriff and there was a cover-up and all this stuff like there's people who you know who will take it in that direction and the other side of it is that maybe there were circumstances in the jail that led to him not being given the care that he was afforded yeah because jerry only let him go to the jail because the sheriff and of course there you go local power man jerry lawler is on like you know texting with the sheriff kind of mm-hmm. saying hey what's going to happen when my son goes into your jail and all that stuff that for me is wild that you can chat with your number. son's jailer about what's going to happen yeah so the circumstances around him ending up in jail for that last time is really weird yeah. and i think there's that's it there's lots of little details about this story which i think makes people jump to conclusions about like ah it's a conspiracy he was murdered when really it's more a case of like this is just what real life is like real life is messy and sometimes everything doesn't make sense but like when he was pulled over for a dui the toxicology report actually came back completely negative he he wasn't under the influence when they pulled him over he was driving erratically right but they they couldn't prove that he was drunk other than they smelt alcohol and he was in and out of like he was like on first name 
yeah, terms with in like everyone in that jail system time. at the time in, in Memphis. Yeah. So his brother, Kevin, kind of believes what happened is that because he was driving erratically and because he had been arrested so many times for disorderly conduct, DUIs, stuff like that, that the police basically were like, fuck it. You know, we, he may not be drunk now, but he definitely is doing this stuff again. He was like a known nuisance in the yeah, area, basically. We'll just bring him in anyway. Yeah. It's like getting Al Capone for tax avoidance or whatever. And like, the, I think the idea is, from from Jerry's perspective, was that it's like, right, maybe it'll... Maybe going to the jail is what'll actually set him straight this time, as opposed to being constantly bailed out. He's been told... There's like a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program in this jail, yeah. which, you know, he'll he'll get seen to, he'll get help. You know, it's the hard thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. Send him to the jail, he'll get the help that he needs. And of course, the jail is, you know, it's not got this program. It's it seems well, to be badly it, run, to say it, the very yeah, least. It did have a, a drug and alcohol abuse program. It had... Um, I don't know if they're psychiatrists, but it had like uh, people whose job it was to care for like the mental health of patients and stuff. Yeah. Because Brian Christopher was at risk. He had apparently had previous suicide attempts. And he had a history of causing fights yeah. in jails because you go as a local celebrity. Oh, you're that phony wrestler. Yeah. Fights ensue. You know? And it's like he had a history as well of like having these very manic depressive episodes. Yeah, he, where... was, he was manic. He was diagnosed as manic depressive. Yeah, yeah, where he'd get really depressed and then really kind of maniacal and like, ah, I'm the best thing in the world and stuff. But yeah, basically Jerry thought, yeah, this will this will teach him a lesson. So yeah. he didn't pay for his bail. While he was in prison, he got into a fight with another inmate because he was talking loudly or whatever. Yeah, he had a yeah. big mouth. And in this fight, he got like a really bad head wound. Yeah, he got like a gash. Yeah. And I think maybe what some folks, and I didn't really know this. I know we saw some bits John Oliver did a couple of years ago about the kind of the jail system in America. Yeah. But it's not just, like, you get all sorts of people who violate parole, people who are waiting trial. It's kind of a really, almost and sometimes more of a kind of a chaotic mix than you oh, would yeah. get in a prison because... It's supposed to be temporary. Yes. So they don't get as much funding. They don't get as much support because the whole idea is you're not there for long. But because of the backed up prison system... It can be more dangerous, I guess. It, it yeah. is much more dangerous and they, they there's a lot less protections and there's people kind of stuck in a system which isn't designed yes, for that. Yes, for them to be there long term or whatever. So anyway, after this fight, he Brian Christopher requested medical attention. He was like, "Look, I think I've got a, a concussion, and I think I need stitches." And as a wrestler, you think he probably would know, you know, his yeah. own limits. Anyway, a nurse looked him over and was like, "Now nah, you're fine." And they shoved him in solitary. So the nurse decides to put him in solitary. I don't know about whose decision it yeah. was, but she examined him and she said that he didn't need medical attention. Now this is part of the whole uh, negligence issue, which is that. Obviously, prisons are massively underfunded, especially in yeah. the US, and especially these like privately run prisons where they're supposed to be like independently but it's financed run for and stuff. profit. So exactly, know, yeah. yeah. And the the corporation that owned this prison and a bunch of others, it's the second largest in America, has loads of lawsuits yeah. against. And it. this jail in particular yeah. had a lot of kind of. They've been audited. There's been yeah. There's bad stuff has happened in this jail historically. Yeah, and all this stuff that happened with Brian Christopher in terms of not getting like drug therapy or therapy in general. He wasn't given the regular medications he was supposed to be on for his bipolar. But his isolation is really that's it. Yeah. Solitary, and then there's the the issues around his actual his suicide, which is that he was even able to hang himself because. Oftentimes in prisons, especially in solitary, they are designed, you know, they're so careful to prevent prisoners from being able to hurt themselves. Yeah, they take stuff away from you. But he had like, he had his shoelaces, but he also had like string on his trousers that he acts. And he also, the room apparently had like all these bolts hanging off the ceiling and stuff. Yeah, like, it was not designed no. for the situation at hand. 
he didn't actually die in the cell. He was, you know, he was found. He was taken to mm-hmm. hospital, and then you know his blood pressure tanked, and yeah. you know he, he passed away. You know, with with his family with him in in the hospital. Yeah. So it was really like tragic senseless loss of life it didn't yeah. need to happen and no. whatever the actual outcome of the court case or anything there i think everyone can agree that there was no reason for him to die when he entered that jail that's it and it's kind of a shame that it's become like this other conspiracy of like oh did he get murdered or whatever because it's kind of besides the point because the issue is that the prison itself did not protect yeah its inmates and this is the a massive issue throughout a lot of prisons in america is that Regardless of if he was murdered or if he committed suicide, it shouldn't have been able to happen. Like, yeah. The, there were 20 cameras not working in the prison. That's just weird. He shouldn't have been allowed to keep his shoelaces in solitary. That's just like standard yeah. procedure. The bolts on the walls should have been ground down. That's again, like standard in prisons. All these little things that individually aren't a terrible thing. But when you put them all together, it's just like, God, this is a... This is not good and something needs to change and this shouldn't have been allowed to happen. And of course, Jerry's going to look at all this stuff and get into his own head of like, well, my son would never have killed himself because it's a horrible thing to think of someone you love taking their own life. And so, and wrestling fans being what they are, jump to conclusions. And now there's this whole conspiracy about, ooh, this happened or that happened. But I think the sad truth is it was, he wasn't looked after. Yeah. And I think when incomplete information is like, amplified to the nth degree and in the great history of wrestling news when it happened there was loads of stuff and there's like trial date is set and then the trials actually you know starts or whatever there's hearings and now we don't hear diddly boo about it yeah you know so it's kind of you know it's it's just really sad because i feel like as hard as his road was and as bad as things got for him we've seen we looked at wrestlers careers who were in much worse positions than he was honestly mm. as bad as he was and they have come through the other side. You know, I think of Scott Hall. I think of Jake Roberts. I think of, like, if if those guys could get help and be able to get in a position where they could contribute back to wrestling, then I think there's no one who was a lost cause in wrestling. And I certainly didn't think he was That's anything it. approaching to that. But what all of those men had, which Brian Christopher didn't seem to have, is a support system. Yeah, and he, he was left on his own a bit, it felt, at the really, end. Yeah, seemed to have any anyone looking out for him. Any friends or... Like, I mean, he had a family... But as a wrestler on the road a lot, yeah. and that's it's just the not the same as this proper support system. It's it's crazy to think because as hard as up as he was, and you know, I read an interview with Jerry Lawler where he said like, "Oh, the the movie The Wrestler it could have been about Brian," yeah. and I'm like, but like he also said in the same interview that Brian had you know a wife, a kid, he was mortgage free, he had a nice house in Memphis, he that's had three hundred yeah. grand in the bank, like mm. he he had it made he made good money and Mm. he was able to parlay that into a a good career for himself so it's not the case that he became this kind of destitute penniless broke wrestler and it's not like he made loads of enemies in the business no ostracized it's so bizarre and like i i think as well like so many of the tweets we've gotten were from there was like a little run in 2016 that too cool did around uk when the uk indie scene was really hot yeah and like that was the hottest ticket in town people wanted to come and see them because people wanted to relive those old days and i 100 million percent agree because scotty went on he became a trainer in wwe in the performance center for like four or five years i think that brian christopher easily is one of those guys he knew enough about what made there's there's charismatic people who can't explain why they're that way he was one of those guys i'm 100 percent sure if he could teach his gimmick to scotty he could teach it to anyone i'm sure he had lots to offer you know so like i always am sad when like 
that next generation doesn't get to appreciate that. And I do worry sometimes that this is one of these gimmicks that super resonates with millennials and folks like that. But maybe younger fans, I don't know, you know, maybe you got a link with Rikishi and, you know, Roman and the kind of the, 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 the bloodline and stuff like that. But I would hate for this to kind of to be forgotten in any way. I think the legacy does live on, albeit not in obvious ways. You know, Scotty, for instance, he was one of Rhea's main producers and trainers. You know, she, she every interview that she's in, she goes out of her way to, to praise Scotty too hotty for making her the wrestler she is. And I'd argue she is one of, if not arguably, the biggest star oh, yeah. in wrestling yeah, she is, in yeah. 2024. Yeah. You know, so I think that is a, a career in terms of a tag team, unlike anything I think we've seen on this podcast so far. And certainly, like their notoriety and their legacy is like exponentially way bigger than the actual period of time where they were part of our weekly television show. Yeah, and I think there is there's stuff you remember as kids, and then there's nostalgia, and then there's the nostalgia that people want to come back to, and the things they want to relive, and the things that they have such fond memories of it's very rare that you see an act like too cool where it makes people remember so clearly what they were like as a fan when they were a kid yeah i'm always interested to know for the next generation what is that act that you'll remember yeah. back what's the act because i you know what the season i'm doing for the outsider podcast at the moment i have all these people being like oh my god i remember you know this i remember the spirit squad or the highlanders these random ass tag teams like they remind me of what it was like when i was a kid gives you that clarity yeah nostalgia can often you know fog up your memories but sometimes in this case it's pretty clear and sharp as to what it was you liked about them in the first place and maybe we'll delve into that a little bit more now when we look into some of your tweets with the hashtag how to cool first up from paul d watts I believe Too Cool are a big reason why WWE in 2000 is remembered so fondly. When I was at school, by 2000, more people were talking about the fun, over-the-top characters of the lower card, like Crash Holly, the APA, the Dudleys, etc. People were invested in the whole show, and Too Cool might have been the most overact on the lower card. Guaranteed, the worm would often get one of the biggest pops of the night, and Too Cool are a great example of why this era in wrestling is remembered so fondly. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like hot periods, inverted commas, in wrestling, where if you were to sit down and watch an entire show, we've done this a few times at pay-per-view classic where we go to like a really hot period in wrestling and then the undercard is like a total snooze fest That's it, yeah but yeah that period of time like top to bottom and that was cool it's like you could say with confidence your favorite wrestler was a mid-card or a low-level performer and your compatriots will be like yeah absolutely of course yeah whereas i think in more modern times if you're like i like this jobber people are yeah. like oh you're just being kind of ironic or weird or it's, counterculture or something yeah, it's funny it's almost <laughs> like people have been worked into a shoot of believing that a wrestler is only good if they're a top guy yeah it's that air of self-promotion yeah and wwe are absolutely they're they're the biggest culprits in this mm. because they're the ones who you know, would send Stone Cold to people to do a backstage chat and be like, if you're not trying to headline the main event of WrestleMania, why are you even in this business? But it's so stupid because that's not sustainable. It's not that's not how life works. You like, have to yeah. have a good balance of people. Like, and I think this episode's been really interesting for that because you really understand the value of a mid carder is that you can't have a top guy being a hype man yeah it was it's work and like you can't have the rock being there like come on guys clap clap yeah, yeah you need cheer for me. you need the good undercard performer yeah. who can do that and i just yeah i think that's it's so wild because 
Maybe Grandmaster did think it to an extent, but if both him and Scotty were sitting there when they're doing that dance, grumbling to themselves, I should be in the main event against The Rock tonight. Yeah. That act would not have been as fun as it was. No. They were able to identify, this is good. And, you know, they were both clearly understood that whatever the gimmick is, we got to ride this to the wheels fall off. And they literally did in the case of Brian's injuries and Scotty's injuries as well. But it always was going to get a pop. Always, yeah. always, always. Next up from 901 Dollary Doos. An indirect moment was when I wore my homemade Too Cool t-shirt to PE at school. Whoa. And my entire class were impressed. <laughs> I would have attempted the worm if we weren't playing rounders on concrete. Ouch. <laughs> I don't know what's more dangerous, the worm or rounders on concrete. Good lord <laughs> almighty. Next from Third Ryan Brother. I was the one Grandmaster Sexay fan in the world. <laughs> hey, <laughs> not, two, baby. True, Come yeah. on. He got Three, me. <laughs> actually, with you now. Come on. He got me with the match against Al Snow and head and small child me thought it was the funniest thing ever all three were among my favorite action figures and i love that too cool had hardy's legs that were better to worm and leg drop with fantastic bonus articulation yeah joe who's doing a little bit of stop motion at the moment who reached a brick wall when the undertaker figure couldn't sit up (laughs) or kneel down (laughs) for that matter just like real life Next from Dom Dom 1984. I'm always amazed they never got a memorable run with the tag titles. They were super over for a decent spell of time. Yeah, people I think in their mind are like, oh, they, they had it for a, a while or yeah. multiple times. It's like, no, I think it was like three weeks, maybe, thereabouts. But they got too greedy. I think the WF with Rikishi being a heel. That, 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 is, that is the great what if, yeah. you know, because that affects so many different things. Not just Stone Cold's career and Rikishi's career, but too cool as well. Yeah. I think, honestly, they could have really, really, really got... So the idea that Scotty and Grandmaster never feuded. I know no. it's, it's a fucking WWE brainworms to be like, what if the tag team split up? But, but like, similarly, that Brian Christopher never had a feud with Jerry. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, I mean, he did historically, but like, I mean, in WWE. Could you just imagine Scotty Too Hardy like wins like a like a US title or European belt and Grandmaster gets jealous of yeah. him and he's like, I'm the star. And the feud those lads would have, you get that heel brian christopher character again and that's the thing that is so bananas to me and why i am in awe of him brian christopher particularly as a performer is that that dude is such a natural heel Mm -hmm. he is so clearly hardwired to be detestable and he was so like not in a million years like i don't even think i clocked that he was the same guy who was like resting al snow and putting head on shoulders <laughs> like he just seemed like a completely different dude his name was different and he's nice yeah. so but that just shows you the skill and the depth of him as a, as a performer that he could do that but yeah i felt we never really got proper heel brian christopher when he had you know a bit of notoriety in the wwf under his belt that would have been amazing it i think been so good now from ct thumbs in the legendary era of tag teams too cool were always my favorite Wholesome, happy characters in the Attitude Era felt like a rarity, especially to get as over as they did. For me, they're right up there with the Hardys, Dudleys, and Edge and Christian. Yeah, they're 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 absolutely standouts there in the terms that you could probably have snipped them out and stuck them in like the new generation. And you know what it really reminds me of as well, when we did WrestleMania 10 on pay-per-view Classic and Men on a Mission came out, you were like, who are these guys? Everyone's waving their arms in the air like they just don't care. <laughs> and like, you know, you need that on a show. Do, yeah. And more so than ever during the period of time where there were 
you know, people being crucified yeah. and being abducted and all sorts of horrible shit. Yeah, a bit of fun. Much needed. Finally now from Harlot Effect. This one's just for you, Kevin. I used to play as Scotty Too Hotty all the time on SmackDown 2, although my finisher would get interrupted in multi-man matches. Yeah, the, the worm was hard to do. I'm going to argue, though, for us Nintendo kids, it was even harder to do on No Mercy because it was, in fact, a taunt. Mm -hmm. So you actually had to position the character and yourself perfectly so that you could then do it. And then when you did the move, it was just a little chop. It wasn't actually a finisher. And you'd lose your finisher by the time, because it took so long to do the dance, you wouldn't get to do an actual finish. It's just, it's... It's an uphill battle, is all I'm saying, if you're picking them as your character. Next up, from Hey Mikey Park. Absolutely adored them growing up. Had entire arenas on their feet with their post-match dance and Scotty's worm. Shame my opinion on Scotty has soured in recent years after he backed out of a scheduled match with Jim Sterling after he found out that they're trans. Yeah, I have vague memories of this. this mm. is like, I know there was... There was something about this. It was, a, it was a show in the UK. And I know as well there was... Like afterwards, Sky did some weird rant about intergender wrestling. And he's like, I'll never do it. Even though I've done it several times in the past in my career. But I've got daughters. And it just... I don't know. came across really badly. The whole situation was, was bad vibes across the board. Like, So, yeah. Okay. So this is what happened. So Jim Sterling, who also goes by the name Stephanie Sterling is a YouTuber and pro wrestler on the UK scene. And she was scheduled to have a match against Scott Garland and all was going fine. And the match was, you know, being publicized and what have you. And then they tweeted that every match that she is in is automatically into gender because she is a non-binary trans femme person. Okay. Which means in her case, she goes by they, them, and she, her pronouns. Okay. And I think... That's the point where he backed out then, was it? Yeah, so I think this is where things got kind of muddled and maybe there was a miscommunication and things taken in bad faith because it is confusing. I can totally see how this is confusing to someone who maybe is older or is less familiar with gender identity stuff. Because she does use she, her pronouns along with they, them pronouns. And she refers to herself as a girl. So what I think happened is Scotty saw that. And I think he probably is just very ignorant. And I think yeah. for a lot of people, <laughs> they are maybe, you know, maybe they're more familiar with like trans gender identities in terms of a binary transgender identity. It's but I think... Kind of like a spectrum yeah, of, yeah. I think a lot of people aren't necessarily that educated on non-binary gender yeah and i, I know that the, the phrase that was used that was very hurtful was like kind of like oh he said he didn't want to do any funny stuff and i'm like well firstly i think you know, the match was probably going to be a comedy match respective of your, your viewpoint on it anyway but yeah it's um it's it's interesting because we had a abaddon on hey ew recently and i feel like they did a very good job at actually explaining mm. acknowledging maybe the confusion and the, the difficulty that some people have with this yeah i think know. abaddon explained it really really well because it's actually a really similar situation to what they're going through at the moment which is they are also non-binary they use just they them pronouns but they will sometimes refer to themselves as a girl. Yeah, the girl from the Black Hills. Or yeah. The Living Dead girl, I should and say. And I think yeah. for a lot of people, especially, you know, and I'm not saying this judgmentally, but especially for a lot of older men, they hear the term girl and they think woman. Whereas for a lot of non-binary people, 
the term girl is a gender neutral term. It's almost like you might refer to a group of girls as guys. Or you might dudes, go, hey guys. Really, yeah. Like, and it doesn't mean right. you're calling them men. Some people might feel that it does, in which case that is obviously valid. But it means different things to different people. Exactly. Yeah. And it obviously as a self-identifier can mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. So in the case of Stephanie Sterling, she refers to herself as a girl. That does not mean she identifies as a woman. So when Scotty then said, oh, I don't wrestle women anymore and I don't want to do intergender matches, obviously that was taken in bad faith because yeah. this was really badly communicated between, I think, the two of them. And the fact that this all happened on Twitter and yeah, public. Yeah, and the social media yeah. war. But like, yeah, that's just, you know, it... It feels as well like once again we're at this issue where like even the the center the hint of the concept of intergender wrestling is enough to freak people out even if with someone who is professionally admitted to having done lots of intergender wrestling in their career it's yeah, bananas that's, to me yeah kind of the other thing because it does come across as very hypocritical for him to say that Seriously. he doesn't do comedy matches because he's a guy who does the worm so <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, really. it's kind of innately a comedy match but i do think that this whole argument brings up a really interesting point about how we i think as wrestling fans need to start accepting intergender wrestling i know it's really hard for people to do but we are in a time where there are quite a few non-binary trans wrestlers yeah that i mean we've had sonny kiss in aew we've got a we've got abaddon in aew There's more more than ever let's more just than say ever. yeah and yes they are automatically intergender matches because of the very nature of they are not you know, same-sex yeah. match types. And yet we still, I think, a lot of wrestling fans are very scared of intergender matches because they think it, like, promotes violence against women. But the issue is, is it seems fine for intergender matches if the person in question is transitioning into a more masculine gender identity, mm. but not a more feminine one. And that, again, reinforces this idea of femininity being inherently weaker. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people as well where, like, you know, even though it's it's... It's nothing recent, but non-binary as a term or as an identity, I think a lot of people willfully, a lot of people struggle with that just because I think they don't want to kind of engage with that as an idea. And I think also it is genuinely hard. I think it's harder now than it was 10 years ago to actually find out about this stuff because there is so much transphobia and mm. there are so many TERFs in LGBT spaces now. Mm. There's, a, there's where... a lot of culture war hatred going around, let's yeah. just say. So I feel while it's, I do agree in some respects the idea of educate yourself. That is easier said than done, especially if you are dealing with an older person. And I just think it's a real shame that no one thought to kind of... And I'm not putting this on Stephanie. I don't think it's her responsibility to, no, to educate others. No, I don't others. blame them for reacting how they did as well, because it was yeah. actually quite offensive to them. Absolutely. And obviously the comments Stephanie gets as a trans person on the internet and as a YouTuber, and as a wrestler. I can't even imagine yeah. living that. Like, God knows Nightmare. the shit she has to sift through. <laughs> but also, I think a lot of people are so quick to jump to automatically labelling someone as being malicious or deliberately ignorant, when I think, at some point, some of us have to help educate others. You were saying to me, if you had seen this go down when it did, I would have literally you would have popped in his Popped in his mentions, been like, hey, send him a DM, like, hey, I, I don't know if you realise, but you're coming across as quite insensitive right mm. now and i genuinely believe scotty thought he was validating stephanie's gender identity when he referred to her as a woman mm. 
And a lot of fans in the comments as well of these tweets were very confused. They were like, I, I don't get it. I thought she was trans. That means she's a woman, right? And it's just, it's just ignorance, yeah. okay? And I do think that these discussions shouldn't be played out in public spheres on Twitter of all places. Yeah. Where there's a limit on character accounts and stuff like that. And yeah, everything's there's a nuance in. that you lose there, yeah. I think. And you people know. do jump to bad faith interpretations because of Twitter already being quite a toxic place. And it's just sad, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because... Um, I think then in those instances, the way these things get handled is, you know, because then Scott's tweets got shared by like JBL and he's a bit of a piece of shit, is JBL. Mm. And I... And then he deleted his Twitter afterwards. Yeah. Like, it's kind of, I don't feel anyone's learned anything no, in this case. No, if anything, he's just doubled down. Mm. And it's like, we actually could have, we might have potentially lost another ally on our side here if we just like, and again, not putting this on Stephanie, this is on us as the fans. If yeah. we see this happening, I think we need to step in and be like, hey... I'm going to try and interpret this in the best faith possible and let you know that what you just said there is is really insensitive and hurtful. Yeah, I think not everyone's going to like not everyone's going to be able to to see that because it's an emotive issue, isn't it? Absolutely. And sometimes people are which just not why, going to want to engage with that. Yeah, which is why the people who are most affected by this, like Stephanie and other trans people, I don't blame them for not wanting to educate yeah. others because it's a it seems like more hate. Absolutely, yeah. and it is it puts them in a dangerous situation, but for the rest of us we do need to take up that role and instead of just jumping to like, oh, that guy didn't understand, you know, quite a complicated gender identity. Yeah. Instead of labeling that person as like, oh, he's a transphobe. Mm. We need to like, you know, fucking send him some resources and be like, actually, she's not a woman. Although she identifies as a girl. Like, I know it's complicated, yeah. but like, it's okay to just be like, that's just how it is. And hey, look, you don't need any more excuses for us to send you over to watch Hey W every Sunday. But oh, so I, I would say in terms of a, a three minute little summation of yeah. a very complex issue, Abaddon with RJ City, is, you could do a lot worse. See a non-binary zombie very eloquently discuss <laughs> complex gender identity is a fantastic thing to behold. And I thought Abaddon said it perfectly an issue that i think a lot of people struggle to wrap their head around so this episode ended up taking a lot of very different turns than maybe initially we thought i think the thing that's most mind-blowing to me is kind of top down how this is really i don't know kind of shed a light on how different wrestling is in terms of positioning on card and fans relating to that in the modern era compared to back in the day because mm. i see myself just going back to daniel garcia throughout all of this he's one of my absolute faves has been since the first time i laid eyes on him and i'm gonna say something that's probably extremely unpopular for a lot of people listening but man i love to see that dude dance yeah i i absolutely love it i pop for it when it's used for dramatic effect i agree with the tweet that said he is like a shakespearean character <laughs> who has a signature dance but for many people seeing dancing attributed to a wrestler is a death knell and i think this episode has proven mm. that being in that role it's not necessarily that and in many respects it's a route to being yeah. in the hearts and minds of wrestling fans for decades to come i feel it's almost like a snake eating its tail because these days we don't really have a strong mid card in any yeah. major promotion and because we don't have a strong mid card people see a mid card a spot as a death Nell. you're buried but then because <laughs> fans treat those spots like a bad thing it means that promotions don't want to book people like that and wrestlers more importantly don't want to be booked like that because they're like no the fans won't take me seriously and i think we have to 
nip that in the bud. We have to get over that because I think there's nothing more satisfying in wrestling than a mid-carder who then achieves greatness. Yeah, that is like the most impressive, most beautiful yeah. stories that wrestling can tell. But like, but you can't tell that story without them getting that journey. Like they have to work their way to that point. Because we can't, remember, we can't all be tough guys, can they? No, you know? like, <laughs> of, like Roman Reigns' career, right? He yeah. was pushed immediately, and it didn't really work for him. Like for a long time, you know, we're I think we're reaching a point soon where him being good is finally going to outnumber yeah. the amount of years where he was the tristling shits. But as you say, <laughs> there are so many wrestlers now where people are like, "Oh, but he's really good. That means he should be given a championship run." There's not enough spots you know, for everyone. We can't keep adding belts. You know what? Well, well, some sometimes we can just keep adding belts. It seems Please, like no. as long as we merge some of them at the same time. But like, it reminds me of like, and I just I. I can't understand what the mindset must be like. A, because I'm older now, and B, because like when I use Twitter, it's like it's for for my job, it's for for work, it's for promotion stuff like that. I get that, I see feedback, I take it on board, but I always try and put a distance to some degree with me. I don't want to be on social media all the time. My brain will fall out of my ears if I do that. But like I remember hearing Mick Foley and Bret Hart talk about in their books, like when the latest wrestling observer would come out, and like the wrestlers would all like huddle around the corner and they'd be the one copy and they'd all read it. Like, am I mentioning what do they say about me? Do they say I'm good? And you've got this like non-stop, never-ending yeah. scrolling doom. Like you think of doom scrolling. If someone's actually saying your career, good, bad, or indifferent, mm-hmm. your performance, every element of it, you're seen on worldwide TV. Like everyone who is in that, like I, I to go back to Danny Garcia. He's only like 22, 23 years old. That guy's got a will made of iron that he must see millions of tweets every week saying, you shouldn't be doing this. This is bad. They're killing you. You're burying you. And he goes out there and he fucking dances and puts on a great match anyway. And he is confident that something will come of it. And he will have, like, that is the exception, not the rule in wrestling right now. Mm. Everyone wants to be a top guy. And I think... The door's wide open if you want to sail in and be that confident mid-carder. I I also feel it's quite insulting to mid-card wrestlers historically to imply that all the best wrestlers need to be at the top of the card. Because what, are you implying then that mid-carders are shit wrestlers? That's what their job is? Because in wrestling, there shouldn't really be any shit wrestlers. Like, no, there shouldn't. Like... And you, a mid-card is important and valuable, as we've seen in this episode. <laughs> they need to be really talented. It's actually a harder job, I think, to be a mid-carder in many respects yeah. than a top-tier champion. Hey, look, I've said it many times before in various podcasts, but like wrestling is fake, and it's as important any element of it as you, the people making the show, want it to be. You could argue that Gunther is a mid-carder because yeah. he is the Intercontinental Champion. He is not the main eventer. He is in the middle of the card. And he made that important because they have decided to tell the story yeah. with a fabulous performer that it is important. I have spent far too many hours watching WWE, AEW, and NXT matches over the years with people coming out with a pissy look on their face because they think they're in the wrong position of the card. Mm-hmm. And like, I would rather that promoters had the balls to say, you know what, new signee that I'm paying six figures to... You're not going to be in the main event. Yeah. You're not going for the world belt. Let's be honest. You're going to do this feud here in the middle of the card mm-hmm. and it's going to make the middle of the card mean something. But they actually have to then commit to that and give them the mid card. you got to stand up time. to those egos and you got to put the time and the work in. Yeah. yeah. And you've got to be okay with the fact that fans for a long time will think that that's burying people. But you need to re-educate this yeah. audience because I think... To some extent, mid-card is great in some respects at the moment because you can say, hey, we got great matches from great wrestlers who are there, but I don't want to see passive-aggressive wrestling on my TV. I want to see people who are fucking, you know what, I want to take this, this whatever the championship is that's in the middle of the card or this comedy act, I want to make it 
be the best that it could possibly be. Because mm. that's always when I see it wrestling. I want to see wrestlers trying to make whatever thing they have as good as it can be. And it's so fascinating when someone is approached by Vince Russo, who probably on an off day is like, ah, I don't know, too much, uh, too cool. They think they're cool, they're not cool. <laughs> and they've made a legacy and a career that has, like, people gushing about the memories they have of this thing. Yeah. Like, that is way more. Like, Vince Russo didn't think that's what that gimmick was going to be when he pitched it. Yeah. I think he thought, this will make Brian Christopher shut up for a week, <laughs> give him something to do on jacked or metal. So, yeah, it's been an interesting thought play this episode yeah and i think if i want anyone to have a takeaway from this episode stop feeling bad that your favorite wrestler isn't being pushed as a champion yet because it's not that important joe when are they gonna blow up the death star <laughs> i want to destroy why can't they just destroy the one ring now if you like them as much as you say you do you should just be happy that they're doing anything at all yeah or maybe just log off twitter for a bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> next episode Oh baby, I'm excited, and I think Joe might even be more excited than me because yeah. I think she's already decided it's her new favorite wrestler. Yeah. Uh, far be it from us to uh, make ourselves be reductive and always just like big dudes with a heart of gold. But our next episode will see us walking the mile through a pit of danger as we talk about Washington's favorite son, the animal Dave Batista. Yay! Yes, fireworks are going off, and we're squatting down doing a machine gun pose as we are releasing this episode very very shortly very very excited about the story of batista i think every time he's shown up on screen because he's come back a couple of times since yeah. you've been watching he seems to have stolen the show mm. baby i can't wait to show you the entire story of one of the few people during triple h's reign of terror who was properly afforded a beginning a middle and a satisfying end Ooh. to his wrestling career it's going to be great. And Joe, I am going to give you what you want Yay! by using the hashtag HowToBatista. We're after your favorite matches, moments, storylines, movie appearances, interviews, bits that you may not know about the man because we're going to be talking about his lunchbox and lowrider collection as well as all of his favorite amazing wrestling encounters over the years. An absolute guilty pleasure of mine. I have come around full circle and I'm absolutely happy to admit that I just want to hear Batista's music and see fireworks go off. We may just watch that for an hour and a half <laughs> and review that instead. Use the hashtag HowToBatista and don't forget you can find the post there on Twitter at HowToWrestling or Facebook.com forward slash HowToWrestling and your home for any and all updates on future, current, past episodes howtowrestling.com all the recommended bonus viewing and the match list and all the info for the episodes are all there and if you want to support this show and help keep it ad free and fan and mister supported head on over to patreon.com forward slash howtowrestling where Joe and I have got a whole bunch of different hot series cooking up and we're giving you fabulous episodes from Totally Divas where we're reviewing the now 10 years old Total Divas in its entirety we've got pay-per-view classic most recently we've done SummerSlam 2001 we've got YouTube Wrestler Review we've got our monthly pay-per-view reviews from WWE and AEW as well people are always asking me and Joe what are our thoughts on current wrestling current stars current product we go in depth we don't really have fear of reprisal because we're behind a paywall yep. we let you know all about our faves and our not so faves patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling a minimum of two new pieces of content a month for a mere five dollars and you get access to that back catalog that goes all the way back to 2016 baby that is hundreds of pay-per-view reviews and bonus content and some of my favorite podcasts i've ever done are over there at patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling 
Joe, it's been a fun time. It's been a, an interesting time. There's been some highs, there's been some lows. But I'm very glad that you got to hear the story of Too Cool, Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor. Yeah, me too. It was fun. Next time, it's going to be Batista. But until then, don't hurt yourself practicing the worm. It's going to be a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. And we'll see you next time on How To Wrestling. See ya.